people who have tuned into this episode probably are going to have no idea what they're in for when they open it. And then as they're listening, they're going to like, little by little, as it goes along, get like various different things. This, this might be one of the episodes that people have a visceral reaction to. This might be one of your most controversial episodes. And you're <laughs> welcome. Happy birthday to Secret, happy birthday to Secret. Part of the reason I'm doing this is that Audacity kept crashing every time I tried to put the theme song in. But seriously, happy birthday to Secret. Welcome back to Check This, Please, the podcast where we've never seen a man eat so many chicken wings. Usually we are going through the webcomic check, please, strip by strip. But after getting through the first few strips of Biddy's second semester of college, we decided, fuck it. And today we're going to be looking at the 14th episode of the 10th season of the long-running, Emmy-winning, Peabody-winning, primetime Comedy Central cartoon series, South Park. We're doing this because today is my birthday. I mean, not today. We're recording today, but the today that this episode will be posting. And you want to know what? Who gives a shit about anything? Who am I, you ask? I am Secret OMG. Who's with me here today? Hi, I'm Tomato. And today we also have an extra voice on our podcast. Hello, it's me. I'm Jovi. It's surreal to be here. I've known about Secret for years, and the whole time I've been pronouncing your name Secret. You want to know what's so interesting is that Nahangan has always done the same thing. I've always said it, Nahangan. <laughs> Oops. All right, well, we're learning all sorts of things, but here's the secret. Tomato, it's just very easy to pronounce, unless you're British, I guess, and then it's tomato, but we don't need to get into that. Joby, do you mind telling us a little bit about who you are and your experience with Check, Please slash South Park? Oh my god, Check, Please slash South Park. Somebody write that. <laughs> I'm a content creator. For the last, I think, eight and a half years, I've made content for the South Park fandom. I used to go by Strawberry Shark Cake. That name might bring up war flashbacks for some people. <laughs> I, I ran a, a long-running Ask blog called Ask Marsh and Bruflowski, centered around Stan and Kyle, aged up. I ran it with a girlfriend of mine who uh, ended up dropping out of the project. I also made a lot of alternate reality universes for the show, and I drew those up until about a couple months ago because I read, oh my god, check please, at the insistence of a certain secret. I liked it. It was different. I've not ever made fandom content for check please. At this point, I kind of can't because all of my art has been poisoned by South Park. So anything I draw for Check, Please ends up looking like South Park. And there's not much of a way to differentiate the two. So I guess that's just one thing I won't ever do. It's very nice to meet you. I've read that blog, which I didn't know you made. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think the the original blog stopped running in uh, about 2016, which led to the half as successful spinoff, Ask Amab Tucker, which was Craig's redemption story. That is so far not finished and has no plans to get finished because of the discrepancy in art style is too big. Uh, I don't think most of the people who are active in the fandom now will remember. And those who do, I'm very sorry. I will also be honest that I was never active in the fandom. I was a big fan of Ask Marsh and Brofowski. I I know you were. You're the only one. You're the only reason why it still exists. I don't think that's true. I may be the only 
only one who like you're talking to or like have been on invited to podcast with. But I think it's fair enough if you are several years away from having made that blog and the social context in which you made it has made you feel like you want to distance yourself from it. I think that's okay. But if anybody is interested in looking at a different kind of storytelling that sort of combines the interactive element of check please that made it so appealing with through line storytelling but also an interesting art style it's really cool i've never seen anybody do something that combines all of the disparate elements that you manage to combine into one project where you tell a story about these characters over like several years of their lives and the way they grow and evolve is really interesting and i really do feel bad that some of that came at a you know emotional cost for you and having to invest yourself in in something like that but i actually reread it at sort of the beginning of lockdown oh no and oh my god i was taking screenshots of different faces or like different reaction shots or like different panels because you have such an expressive style and thank you (laughs) combined with the sort of hyper emotional teenage angst affect of the writing it just really really worked for me and i think anybody who's able to like put a project together like that and sort of carry it through all the way that's a big accomplishment that very few people ever do i have fan works in the south park fandom that i have been you know working on for years prior to when you started that one and like i haven't managed to finish them for uh for anybody who doesn't remember or hasn't heard what we aimed to do me and my girlfriend when we started i was i think 14 for context it was an interactive fan fiction with a plot that we wrote beforehand for about a year and a half worth of the comic that could be influenced, point of view could be influenced by asks that we got or by things that were told to Stan and Kyle. It it takes place in one of one or both of their bedrooms. They're recording it from their own computer and they're looking at you and they're talking to you about what's happening to them, which we thought would be really cool to do with characters that experienced the world of South Park that we are about to uh, delve into. It became, because my girlfriend dropped out of the project partway through, and that was also when we broke up. We're back together now. <laughs> We're very happy, but there was a big growth period in between then, because you mentioned teenage angst, and that's pretty much what it is. It became a lot of my own projection because I was going through my own substance abuse and my own breakup in high school. Part of its biggest critique was the drama and the way that the drama was portrayed and the way the alcoholism was portrayed in a comic about a cartoon that did a lot of things worse than I did. If you do read it, beware. There is suicidal ideation, there is alcoholism mentioned, and there is abuse mentioned and potentially shown. So if you're sensitive to that kind of thing, don't read it. There is an unfinished South Park Wikia article about it. And that's one of my greatest accomplishments as an artist is that I did not write that. Someone else did. Your art, if you ever decide to make Check Please art, would be a real great addition to the Check Please fan art oeuvre, which is limited. So I just want you to know that. I would love to make Check Please fan art because, I mean, if you've ever seen anything I've ever drawn, you know that I love size differences. And as soon as I looked at Jack and Vinny next to each other, I went, oh man. Let's get to 
what is South Park? For those of us who have seen 10 episodes because Secret made a list for us a couple years ago and then we watched all of them and then we started watching season one but then our bad roommate was also into it and then we couldn't watch it anymore because our bad roommate just kept watching it and it just kind of made the experience less about gay love and that just wasn't for some of us. You can't watch South Park without the gay love. So can you remind us what South Park even is? Yeah, so South Park is a cartoon that began airing on Comedy Central in August 1997. It was inspired by a video Christmas card that was created for a TV executive that spread virally around Hollywood at the time, which led to the creators, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, being offered a TV deal with Comedy Central, which was a relatively, like, not established network at the time. This Christmas card and the subsequent pilot episode, Cartman Gets an Anal Probe, okay, were both made out of construction paper collage. Honestly, if you watch the first episode of this show, it truly is a work of art. When you think about the care and the thought that has to go into all of these little tiny pieces of construction paper being cut out, being arranged, and then being photographed for a split second of the show thousands and thousands of times, it really is impressive, even if you don't particularly love it. That said, I think starting with literally episode two, they got digital technology that allowed them to create the show like on a computer. So it hasn't been construction paper this whole time, but the aesthetic carries through. Since then, there have been 23 seasons of the show on Comedy Central. There are 307 episodes. Some of them are no longer available. Specifically, the three episodes that depict the Prophet Muhammad are no longer accessible, at least in the U.S. Season 24 is supposed to debut sometime in the fall, probably in September or October. A date hasn't been announced yet, if you want to tune in. And the show has been renewed through season 26. Like I said, the creators are Matt Stone and Trey Parker. They share the voice acting duties. They do like the vast majority of it with a few major exceptions, none of which are really important to this episode that we're going to talk about. Matt Stone tends to be more involved in the business side of the thing. He's more of a kind of creative admin type. So most of the creative work that goes into the show is credited to Trey Parker, both in the show itself, he's billed as the writer-director on, like, the vast majority of episodes of the show's run. And also when, in the fandom, we talk about what's going on with South Park, I feel like most of the time, the kind of creative decision-making is usually credited to Trey. They don't really have a robust bust writer's room structure. They kind of people it with whoever they want in there. And they've been the showrunners of this show for all 23 seasons. So we're talking about people who have had total creative control over this entire franchise, this entire property for like well over two decades now. So they're the showrunners, the director, the writer, the major voice talent. You can start to see why this show kind of wears on people because it's the perspectives of the same two people and really the same one person just recycled over and over again for years on end. And one critique I've made in the past of South Park is that unlike a lot of animated shows where you get new talent coming through the show and people are trained in the writer's room and by taking over as showrunners to sort of create their own shows, 
there really hasn't been any creative progeny of South Park Studios, so to speak. There's no like genealogy of people who worked on the show and then went to really get their own major success. So it is a bit of a closed circuit creatively. And that I think at least can be a problem. I want to point out only because we're going to get into fandoms a little bit later, but South Park does have a variety of voices in it. And one of those voices for at least some of the seasons is Tumblr unproblematic darling Bill Hader, who's notable primarily because he's in the movie It Chapter 2, which as you may remember, I'm continually obsessed with. And because we're going to kind of talk about different kinds of fandom and different kinds of personalities within fandom and thinking about what kinds of fandoms are seen as problematic or unproblematic. I just want to point out that despite the problems that people have with it, this is like a pretty mainstream show with pretty mainstream voices on it, including people who show up in other fandoms because of whatever franchises like It Chapter 2, which end up becoming the anti-parade. So it's kind of an interestingly positioned show. Do you think Bill Hader would get canceled if more people knew that he's been working on South Park on and off for like over a decade. No, well, maybe, but in the It fandom, I think too many people want to have sex with him, so they would find a way to excuse it. And that's and that's kind of the same reason why uh, a lot of the people who work on Saturday Night Live aren't instantly canceled for branching out to, oh, I don't know, let's make up a name, Big Mouth. So if you want to watch South Park, or even if you don't, I would say the golden age of the show was maybe seasons five through nine. Not that every episode was perfect, but that's the funniest run they had to me. If Jovi has another view or thinks something else is good, feel free to throw it in. I don't have the encyclopedic knowledge that Secret does of South Park, but my favorite episodes, and keep in mind, I have not watched a full episode of South Park other than today, in, I want to say, three years. <laughs> Whenever Tweak X Craig came out, that's the last full episode I ever watched, but my favorites still in my mind are the Imagination Land trilogy, which is uh, where I got into the series when I was a kid, Guitar Quiro, the list is a pretty good one. Those are just the ones that I have always remembered as the ones that I enjoyed the most and that have offended me the least. I'm gonna look it up right now. I think those are all season 11? Yeah, they are all back to back. The run of uh, season 11, episode 10, starting with Imagination Land 1, and then Guitar Quiro is number 13, and the list is number 14. I used to be that kid. I was told not to watch South Park, which made me want to watch South Park, so I'd sneak out in the middle of the night and go watch it. I had but... South Park in, I want to say elementary school, but I got scared. I couldn't do it. I couldn't hack it. It was the episode where I think it's they're trying to say shit as many times as possible before they weren't allowed to because of TV standards and practices office. And then the, it ends in a really spectacularly violent way. And I was just like, this is too much for me. And I had to stop watching. Yeah, I think the very first scene of South Park I ever saw was uh, in Imagination Land when the bomb goes off in Imagination Land. It's not a good first impression to make on a nine-year-old, but then again, the show is not intended for nine-year-olds. So that was my first mistake. The shit episode is called It Hits the Fan, and I think that might be the opener of season five. Yeah, it is. Oh my god. 
At a certain point, I would have truly known like the episode season and number of every single episode. At this point, I've become sort of disconnected and we're also several seasons into the show not being that great. Even though I continue to watch it, I'm not thinking about it as much. In the newer ones, at least that I've noticed, it feels inconsistent and experimental because it is. Now they're trying to do that across the season storyline, which they've never ever done before. And that was kind of the appeal of South Park. The meta caught up to them and they have decided that things going back to normal at the end of the episode isn't cool anymore. The storylines is where it fell off for me just because I I can't be asked to pay attention that long. This show has been on the air for long enough that it's really shifted sort of what it is as it has been airing. So the early years of the show, the kind of thing around which there became a cult-like mainstream popularity for it, were this kind of surreal, abstract, cheesy pop culture referencing sort of thing. It was the late 90s. It really, I do think, is like drawing on a sort of late 90s aesthetic. The biggest influence, I think, is the sort of libertarian culture of rural Colorado at the time. So the residents of the town on the show in the early seasons have these hick sentimentality of, I don't know, a kind of mob ethos. They're all infused with this deep suspicion. There's this warped reality of the show as an expression of the affect of Colorado mountain life. And it's true that the show is set in an area that actually exists. Park County, which we'll hear mentioned a lot in the episode we're going to talk about, is a real place. It's part of the larger Denver metro area, but there are a lot of small, weird towns around Park County. South Park is a real place. It's not a town. It's the Flatland Valley region of Park County. The show is set in a town that's kind of modeled on the real county seat of Fair Play. I think the art style, that construction paper aesthetic that I was getting at before, is really about the discrepancy between what it looks like and the content. And it's symbolic of the show's conservative ethos. The creators of South Park really believe that people are inherently good and then they are corrupted by society. This is kind of like a conservative viewpoint that bureaucracies and governments do not help people. Liberals tend to have the alternative view that people are born iffy and they need to be shaped by strong regulation, not just economically, but of everything. That codes of ethics and and laws are what keep people together. South Park really takes the opposite view. Because South Park is made digitally in-house, They have traditionally produced them over six days, which gives them the ability to respond to current events pretty quickly. In 2020, that is not super impressive. Basically, every single person in the world has the ability to respond to literally anything on the internet whenever they want to. But it was only until like relatively recently that this was actually a huge novelty. So The Simpsons, which was South Park's only real analog for the first several years that South Park was on the air, still in 2020 takes a better part of the year to produce an episode. So the fact that South Park gained this ability and this willingness to respond to things happening in the real world very, very quickly became something it was notable for. However, 
I don't feel to great impact. I think the fact that you can reference things doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing anything interesting with those references. And more to the point, when all you're doing is depicting something that's happened recently on screen, you're not necessarily giving yourself a lot of time to digest that. I think the final thing that's really kind of notable about this show itself as a phenomenon is that they have the stupidest, most ridiculous politics. So I mentioned already that they have a sort of libertarian ethos that comes from the culture of rural Colorado in the 1990s. Both Stone and Parker are from rural Colorado, so they are depicting a world that they are very much familiar with. They also have a very contrarian point of view. So early in the show's run, truly while they were making the first season, they were Hollywood outsiders. And the show kind of increasingly over the years became a response to what they seemed to feel was a hypocritical show business culture. At the same time, a lot of problems, I think, stem from this because very quickly they became the establishment. And they were no longer like young, hungry dudes who had never had success before pushing back against what they viewed as hypocrisy. They just kind of became hypocrites turning around and spewing their own ethos on everybody. But generally, the sort of point of view of the show, even when it comes around to twisted liberal takes, is that society makes things worse, consensus is bad, groupthink is bad, being relegated or told what to do is bad. Something else I noticed too about why uh, South Park is so attractive to a lot of people, why it was and why it still is, is uh, when it started, the legend goes that they were rejected by Fox because their show wasn't about a family, Simpsons and whatever. But they do a lot with animation that a lot of shows don't do because they can make a giant Barbra Streisand robot and they can make stuff explode all crazy and they can make a trapper keeper inhale people. You know, the whole time little fourth grade boys are saying the F word and college kids who are staying up watching TV at midnight and everybody's dad really likes to watch that stuff. That's the biggest uh, change, I think, that's happened over time is that now people like my dad don't like the show anymore because it's not made for them anymore. It's made for a completely different generation of people who like a completely different style of TV show. That's always something that's fascinated me about it is that it's so simple in the art and then in a couple of minutes, everything gets real weird. <laughs> I actually think that raises a point that I'd never really thought about before, but nevertheless is true, which is that animation is really expensive, actually. I think a lot of people don't think too much about this because they think of drawing as sort of cheap, but the process involved in a traditionally animated cartoon that has a writing staff and an outsourced voice staff and needs to be drawn overseas and then shipped back and then produced based on raw material. If you think about like animation, every single new character, every single new set, every single new effect, that all needs to be developed and then drawn. South Park doesn't have any of those concerns because they do it all digitally and they do it all in-house. They don't even need to worry about coordinating with their voice actors how they're gonna do re-recording because it's just them. And that's, that's too a big, big difference between what people see traditionally as adult animation, South Park, Family Guy, American Dad, 
kind of stuff that that tends to be more simpler looking because it's not that people think that nice stylized animation is only for children's cartoons. It's just that it's easier and faster to produce simpler animation. There was a a really good Twitter thread about some of those crowd shots in Family Guy that look wrong because they're made so quickly. It's not that the animators are bad drawers or anything. It's not that they don't like their job. It's just that there is such a constraint within the industry now for producing faster, cleaner, sharper animation as opposed to stylistically interesting. I mean, over the over the years with South Park, it looks more developed now. They put fingers on hands and close-ups and they do more interesting blood splatter and the explosions aren't just stock effects, they're created. And they do it digitally now, which means that they can evolve as the market for digital animation changes. So they can make things look like uh, that episode with the, the heavy metal part where they do all the the hand-drawn animation. Matt and Trey told them to do it, so they did it. It's amazing what they're capable of now as opposed to what they could do 10 years ago and the things they use it on, like making jokes about transgender children. Just the scope of adult animation has changed and I blame and congratulate South Park for that. Interesting. I like animation. That's part of what South Park is to me. Not that I think it's like the world's foremost animated accomplishment, but it's part of this larger story about adult animation coming out of the U.S. And how they're able to do all of that within a week for one episode. Yeah, I mean, their whole production schedule is just fucking insane. It's like (laughs) completely different from how anybody else operates. I used to think to mostly detrimental, but like sometimes positive effect. But now I just think maybe it's like detrimental because it prevents them from ever planning a show. They never have to write anything. The writer's room is basically just Matt and Trey and whoever they want to hang out with that week cracking jokes and then they go record it. All the people they think would clap for them the hardest when they tell a funny joke. And that's that's one thing too that you mentioned before that it's just them, uh, that the kids in the show and the adults have kind of just become mouthpieces for Matt and Trey, which is why when you talk about fandom where they try to differentiate the characters makes it so funny. They're not writing characters like they would in a traditional TV show. It's a paper cutout that's shaped like a fourth grader that tells you government is bad or something. I don't know if Stan Marsh really feels that way, but he sure as hell just said that just now. I guess we should get into the fandom a little bit so we can finally talk about this episode. As far as I'm aware on the internet, there was South Park fandom as early as the early 2000s in the kind of like writing fanfic, making up OCs sense. But I got into South Park fandom in late 2007. And my awareness of the situation is that the current slash fandom is a kind of genealogical development of a movement that began in 2006 from an inspiration from this wave of hyper-stylized fan art from Japan. The kind of most prominent member of that group of fan artists was a person named Baby Hip. I have no idea if you can still find her, like Kyle Kenny fan art. Something that I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with the South Park fandom don't realize is that the slash sub-fandom of South Park is pretty much entirely concerned with aging up the characters. There are other like sub-fandoms that do tell general interest stories about the kids while they're in fourth grade, or they deal with het OCs or whatever, but 
for the most part, the part of this fandom that I have been involved in is the Slash fandom that primarily asks the question, what will these kids be like as adults? Will they be gay? It's all future fic, and I mean that in the sense of envisioning future lives for the characters. So sometimes there are AUs that are set in past eras, and sometimes, of course, these aged-up slash fics are set in the present day. So like Stan and Kyle in 2020, but they're in college or whatever. But it's all coming from this concept of like speculating on how the characters will be later. For the most part, over my long history in the South Park fandom, the main tension there in terms of shipping was between Stan Kyle as a ship, their best friends, that's kind of the template for that pairing, versus Cartman and Kyle, which is an antagonist dynamic. They would be, I guess, enemies to lovers. And then there were all these sort of like kooky side pairings, especially for one-off characters. But for the most part, the main interest was always centered around the main group of friends, which consists of Stan, Kyle, Kenny, Cartman, and their sort of friend, Butters. Now, things are mostly concentrated on the pairing of Craig and Tweek, who are two tertiary level friend characters whose relationship became canon on the show in the fall of 2015. And this is like a topic that would take a lot of time to explain, so I don't want to get too deep into it here. If this episode is successful, we can just do one on that episode. I think that is the pairing that is the most popular thing going in South Park fandom right now. But I'm not into Craig and Tweek, so I couldn't tell you what's happening over there in that part of the fandom. That is arguably when, A, the most younger people I have ever seen entered this fandom in one big swath. You know, most of the people you see who post Creek content are between the ages of 13 and 18. It just appeals to a new audience of people, and I can't fault it for that. But it's also the biggest split in the fandom that I have seen since Kyle Kenny and Stan and Kyle, which that was years ago, and I don't don't think I was old enough to join those debates. I think we still had dial-up back then. People just stopped making content for other ships or they don't post it in as publicly declared spaces just because nobody's going to interact with it. That's just part of the evolution of fandom. So people have separated off into their own little niche areas and their own little corners and doing their own things and that's part of why the fandom doesn't appeal to me anymore because it feels just less like a community and more like we're all yelling at each other. That's kind of interesting to me in the context of Check Please because I think like a couple episodes ago when we were talking about weird Check Please fanfic, one of the points that Tomato brought up was the way in which Check Please fandom feels very like relegated to its its own corners. There's sort of like a bitty contingent and a parse contingent and they sort of don't interact. I have no involvement in the Check Please fandom, so everything I hear about it comes as a complete surprise to me. I guess in a broad way, I had no idea why Kent never showed up again until it was explained to me what happened with all of that and the fandom. And I identify with that very much. I can sympathize with the author on that very much, on how uh, how fan response to a work changes it in, in a way that the author doesn't anticipate when they start, and how Sometimes when you say things out of context or not within the comic, it can change people's perceptions of characters or, or things like that. So in, in that way, I really felt for the author of it. Yes. 
This was going back just slightly before that. I mean, this is something that's an interesting difference between Czech Please and South Park because fans of Czech Please have much more direct access to Ngozi, I would imagine, than your average Creek fanfic writer have to Matt and Trey, right? So pretty different in terms of the power dynamics there. Although, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. But definitely kind of interesting to think about that. I'm curious whether the, what's the word that grad school taught me? Atomization of fandom is part and parcel of the way that social media has been developing the past couple years, or whether there's another sort of structural reason for that. It's also happening in the only other fandom I've got my finger in, which again is It's Chapter 2. Although in that case, it's not so much a pairing diversion as much as a what's your opinion about morality and fiction kind of separation. So of course, there's people who prefer one pairing over another, but that major split and the kind of major fights seem to be about what's appropriate to depict in fiction and what isn't. But I'm curious if this is happening kind of all of these different fandoms and these corners are popping up and people are kind of going to their own separate discords or going to their own separate chats rather than using, I mean, long ago, LiveJournal or now Tumblr, a a blog style site. I'm curious whether this is just part of the structural changing of the internet and polarization is coming out of that structural change. The answer is no. This has always been an aspect of fandom. The issue, I think, as I perceive it, is that the tools that fandom is now using for communication are forcing those divisions to the forefront. I mean, for like many years, the only ways to communicate with other fans were infrequent and limited. You had to do it either at conventions, via print zines, or then over like Usenet groups. And the way that fandom changed when things moved to LiveJournal was that everything was instantaneously available on one platform, but you could curate your experience so that you just didn't open the README on a post that you didn't want to engage with. Or the person creating that content was able to filter it so that they were directing it to the you know, arguably giant group of people they wanted to see it. What Tumblr has done is it has basically removed any availability to filter anything and you now just see everything all at once. And because of the nature of reblogging, if you really don't like something, you're going to have to see it like multiple times. And it's going to start putting, I like the word discourse. I don't like its negative application, but it's stuff that people would basically label discourse. So it's almost being shoved in your face constantly. So these like divisions and debates about what is okay and what is not okay, or like what ships are okay and not okay, are just constantly being shoved in front of people's faces. There are histories of these types of wanks happening in zine fandom. It's just that, you know, they're happening only between a much smaller group of people over a much more drawn out period of time because it's happening like in print 
And the number of people who can access a Star Trek fanzine is just not as many. I would argue that to the uh, the filtering system, it depends. Honestly, the biggest thing about fandom right now is curating your own experience. And some people aren't used to that because uh, there are things like Tumblr Savior and XKit that you can use to, to get rid of, of blogs, but it's like, it is a lot more accessible now. I see discourse about South Park and I could have sworn I unfollowed most of the people who I used to follow in the fandom. People are more likely to respond now with their own takes, whether they are educated or not, on the thing you are arguing. I think when it really died for me, when I stopped caring, was when I just made a desperate plea for people to let me draw the ship art that I would like to draw and not accuse me of being homophobic for not drawing two gay characters together. And someone responded and said, it's not that deep. Why are you making it that deep if it's not that deep? What I did in the post was encourage people to go back into the history of the South Park fandom to when the only canon gay ship was two adults and they didn't care whether the kids kissed each other or not. And you can't get mad at people for drawing old ship art for a ship that has become canon in the last three years of a 23-year-long show run. You just can't reasonably do that. So getting upset about ship art that's not Creek or whatever existing isn't fair. And someone said it's not that deep. And it's like, well, why would you want to be in a fandom if you don't want to know about the fandom? A lot of these arguments used to be just like localized on single Lime Journal posts. Yes. It really was more like a discussion because it would be on one post. And I think it was much more opt-in. I mean, I I obviously remember, you know, flame wars of years past, etc. But maybe because you had to choose to click the read more, you had to go to fandom wank or whatever. It seemed to me that if you wanted to wank, you could. And if you didn't want to, unless you were the target of a wank, you really could avoid it pretty easily. But now it seems to be less the case. So maybe that's why the divisions feel, as you said, more present, more at the forefront. It's just not opt-in. Your stance really defines who you are in a fandom. And they're so much more serious now. When, When I used to see all like the anime style fan art on DeviantArt, it was like, this ship sucks, you know, Kyle Kenny rocks. And it's like, that's cool, that's fun and silly. But now it's become a big morality discussion of if this character is canonically gay, can I make him pansexual in the future? And to, to a point, I agree with that, but also it's South Park and they are children. Well, I think we should talk more about that idea of, of transformation because we're going to kind of talk about transformational fandom, but I think that's exactly what you're kind of thinking of when you think about transformational fandom. It's taking something that's in a canon and then starting to push at it and question it and see what might happen if, right? Yes. And then you end up getting this really complicated discussions where everyone has a lot of baggage in the fight because identity is a hard thing to talk about. And because morality, like, shocker, morality is not the same from person to person. So different people see the same thing and come up with different opinions about it. And then this becomes a very tender point in a fandom. I do also think that the tone of online discourse has shifted. And I don't mean discourse in a bad way. I just really mean discussion. And sort of the way that people justify their arguments is quite different. I don't know the last time I saw someone saying this ship is bad because I hate this character. Often the justifications now reach for rhetoric, which surrounds morality and identity because that 
is very effective. So I'm really curious to see how that continues to develop. But I think that's definitely part of that shift towards more serious stakes that you mentioned is because the rhetoric and things that people reach for in the rhetoric change as well. Although there was also some pretty ridiculous people pretending to be terminally ill and then like doing crazy shit, you know, on Live Journal as well. But it was just a different period. Fandom isn't always bad and it's not always good, but there are people in it who do things that are questionable. And it's always okay to question stuff like that. But when it's something that is just kind of silly to me to take such a moral high ground for so long. People have blogs that are years and years old dedicated to finding every little piece that they can of this topic and debating it and getting frustrated over it and cry typing and making call-out posts for years. And why would you dedicate yourself to that? When I mentioned curating your own fandom experience, that's part of it, is not looking at things that upset you. There can be an argument made for things that should or shouldn't exist in fandom, in fan content, or in any content. They do and they will. And that's just up to them tagging it properly and then you blacklisting those tags if they upset you. But again, I'm not saying discourse sucks and I hate it and it shouldn't exist. I'm just saying that if you dedicate years of your life to following something you hate, that might impact your fandom experience negatively and make you look at it in a negative way. Well, I think that's kind of a point that we'll end up circling back around to because those are issues that are wrapped up, at least for me, in both South Park and Check, Please. I'm very interested to hear about uh, the impact of all of this to Check, Please, because it's kind of fun and kooky when you're doing it with a big, big cartoon like South Park, but it does make me a little sad to think that it's just one author who wrote this comic allegedly by herself, and if I had written something like Check, Please, or if somebody had made a podcast about my little comic, I would have unplugged my whole computer and cried, because I don't think I would have been able to take that. But I don't, I'm not backed by Comedy Central and a huge studio, and I can't go home to my $20 million mansion and cry to my beautiful wife. Okay, I just want to clarify <laughs> that Trey Parker has multiple $20 million mansions, and I'm not sure if he and his wife are getting divorced or not, because they announced it in early 2019, but they've been quarantining together, and they've been on, like, multiple vacations, and he bought her a horse, and I just don't know. And also, yes, her name is Boogie. So just make that clarification, please. Sorry, I can't go home to my beautiful supposed wife and cry in my multiple mansions with my wife's brand new horse because some kids made fun of me on the internet. I will also say, although Ngozi, as far as I know, does not have even one $20 million home, which really, how gauche of her. The thing about Check, please. That, and maybe we could talk about this a little more as well. That's different from something like a fan comic is that Check, Please is ultimately, unlike fan fiction, unlike most fan endeavors, fan art is a little more complicated because people will pay money for it, but it's still not really the same thing as a capitalist endeavor. I'm not saying that Check, Please is, I don't know, the purveyor of all capitalism or something, but it's Ngozi's livelihood. She's making it to make money. It is legitimized as art, perhaps low art because it's a comic and so on. It depends who you ask. High art and low art don't even really exist. Whatever. But you know what I'm saying? It's legitimized as, a, as an art form which is worthy of public conversation about it. 
right? Obviously, Secret and I are crazed. So it's not that it's your average response to an indie webcomic that made it big or whatever. But but I do think it is a piece of art available for public consumption that's not designed for a specialized audience like fanfic is. It's designed for a general audience. And that means anyone who wants to can go to a bookstore and buy it and have opinions about it and share opinions about it. I think there's something really different, and this is something we can talk about, when something like what you made, Jovi, which was designed for a specific audience who had a familiarity with the fandom and with the show that was made for free, that wasn't your livelihood, or the fanfic that I write or secret rights or whoever writes because those things are not in the same kind of public eye. Of course, anyone who wants to can go look at my fanfic and tell me I'm an asshole and don't worry, they do. But it's not the same kind of vulnerability because there is at least this, I think, and I'm not saying Ngozi shouldn't be treated well. She should be. People shouldn't be assholes to her. But there's a cushion of legitimacy and capital between check please and like this podcast, right? Does that kind of make sense? So it's not that people shouldn't be kind to her and be thoughtful about her as an artist, but Check Please is still worthy of discourse in a sort of like public discussion way because it's a piece of art to be looked at by many people. No, yeah, I I understand that. I didn't mean to make you uh, defend yourselves here. Oh, no. I, I recognize my own bias as a, a artist, <laughs> but that you, you have a point that she sold it and she has a whole book and she has a website and she has so much. She's this close to her $20 million mansion. And I think oh, but- part of the reason I feel not because of you, Jovi, at all, but because of the feeling in the fandom of an unwillingness to critique Check Please except in sort of the dark secret OMGCP critical corners comes from its travel from this made-for-free online for a specialized audience who are adjacent to fandom beginnings to its sort of like legitimized end. And so I just think that that complicates everything about Check Please. And I don't want to say Ngozi is like the same as, I can't remember which person's last name is which for the creator South Park. Matt? You can, you, you can just say Matt and Trey, but uh, okay. Matt Stone and Trey Parker. Okay, thank you. So yeah. she's not in the same position as Matt and Trey for many, many, many reasons, right? But she still is operating in a different place. And just as we can critique South Park, we can critique Check Please. That's my hot take. I completely understand that. There's so many little, little like D&D podcasts, for example, that once they got their comic book, it became a little corporate elitist to me. And like things like hockey that uh, traditionally people don't love the way that we might love it or uh, D&D, things like that. When you make a fun little story about it, it's nice and cute, good for you, but then you sell it. And everybody who loved it before kind of gets that feeling of yay, I get to buy the book, but you want my money. I would like to give it to you because I support you as a creator, but also you want my money. And that's two steps away from Matt and Trey. I have done something that I have never done during this podcast before, which is during this conversation, I took out a notebook and I took notes on what I wanted to say in response to this. Because this conversation is the crux of so many issues that go into my fan experience. If people have been following me on Tumblr for a while, at least on my South Park Tumblr, but also I guess actually also on my Check Please Tumblr, something that I have maintained for a long time is that criticism is a public good. 
And it can just as easily veer into cruelty if it's not practiced correctly and carefully as it can be misinterpreted by overly sensitive creators and participants. So I guess the things that I would note in response to the conversation that you guys have just had. Number one, I do think there is a distinction between directing criticism specifically to the author versus just having it in your own venue. I would never, ever send this podcast in the direction of Ngozi. This is something that we are doing for ourselves and for people who want to follow along with us and respond to us because we're trying to sort out our own feelings about this story that we've just consumed. That I think is completely different than specifically targeting you as a creator of Ask Martian Broflovsky coming to you specifically and saying, hey, what you're doing is wrong because those are two different things. And now Part of, I think, curating your online experience or your fandom experience is some of the onus is actually on you to not go searching for those things. Although as somebody who has been criticized, it is really, really hard not to. But we're all human, so what can you do? But like, obviously I'd be much happier if I hadn't found some of the mean things that have been written about me on the internet. That said, the only reason why I ever knew to go looking for them was because people directed things to me in the form of asks. So directing stuff at the author versus having a conversation amongst yourselves where the author is unlikely to find it, very different. I think the context out of which works are created is also different. If you see that the person who is writing this blog is a 14-year-old or even a 16 or an 18-year-old, you probably can put into context that the way you should interact with them is somewhat different than even a woman who's in her early to mid-20s, who's been through college and is now in grad school and is in the process of professionalizing, versus two middle-aged men who live in Hollywood and have written a massively successful Broadway musical or whatever. So putting together information about what it is that you're actually approaching, that's pretty important. I think tone is really important. And I have said this a million times in fandom, you can make the same criticism, even a relatively harsh criticism, if you find out the right way to frame it. So if somebody were to approach you about your ask blog and basically say, hey, I've been reading your ask blog. I wonder if you'd like to talk about some of your decision making with me because I have, you know, feelings about this and I'm trying to figure out what my response should be. That is a completely different type of conversation than just like, hey, this is wrong. I don't like it. Shut it down. God, I wish that had happened to me. I will say that I made mistakes. And a lot of the things that were said were said validly. People had opinions that I agreed with. If I could rewrite the whole thing, I would. But had I been approached in a way that was more like that, can we discuss this rather than the thing that happened? That would have been a, a lot more easily digestible as a person who does not 
have a book published. I'm not here to validate myself or anything. It's been long enough. I've gotten plenty of that. But I will say, this is a fun podcast to listen to. <laughs> Even with the context of, you know, oh, this comic was made by one person and, and she probably cared about it very much. Like, yeah, but everything is worthy of criticism. Even, you know, fan content that people write over a series of years, that's still worthy of criticism. It's just that maybe it's not worthy of call-out posts and death threats, but you guys obviously aren't sending death threats to Ngozi, and you aren't even saying, I hate this dumb comic and it sucks. I agree with a lot of the things you say about it, and in a lot of ways, I wish that this critique might have been implemented, but it's a little late for that, so all I have is this podcast. Well, what's so interesting about what you're saying is that I obviously don't hate Check, Please, and I obviously don't hate South Park, but I do think both of them suck in different interesting ways. And I know you just laughed, and like, I guess the way I said that was a little funny, but part of the problem of being a consumer is even as a single person who knows myself, I have a lot of different conflicting views of things. Part of why I wanted to do this specific episode was because I thought it would be interesting to get into a discussion about a fandom that really weighs on me, much in the same way that Check Please weighs on me. And it's just trying to resolve why I like things or what I get out of things that aren't necessarily things that I consider great is, I don't know, like an important and interesting process. And I think that's part of the process of being a critic in the sort of academic scholarly sense. You are weighing and contextualizing things. And I think that's a discussion that you want to have with other people as, you know, what Foucault would call discourse. It's part of, I don't know, my intellectual foundation. And I guess I would kind of spin that around to respond to this conversation by saying, I think a lot of creators, not based on what I understand about what I saw while Wink was going on in the South Park fandom, not you. I think you reacted like in a way that I would anticipate. But I do think that a lot of creators, perhaps including Matt and Trey, take criticism that is not meant to be mean and is largely meant to be helpful and substantive really, really hard in a very oversensitive way. And I think that they start to feel like they're being praised for having produced something and their feelings about the thing that they've produced are paramount to the consumer's feelings about it. And, you know, I feel like part of the reason why you make an artwork, even low art, is because you want people to feel ways about it. And part of how they figure that out is by having discourse about it. And I do genuinely feel like even though, yes, sometimes hate does happen, a lot of what is now characterized as hate is not fully positive talking out of what a work of art is. I would absolutely agree with that. It's not that everybody needs to coddle content creators. Not all critique is negative. People could benefit from it all the time. And I would definitely posit that the, you know, the big million dollar animation industry could use a little more critique so that things may change. It's, it's fundamental on the level that low art or fan art or 
um, smaller content creators or even just practicing fan artists, like trying to grow their following, it's pretty paramount that they get some kind of critique about shapes or colors or e even like writers too. Very important. Comments on AO3 and stuff like that are super important and I try to leave them whenever I can. Or in Secret's case, tell them directly and offer to pay them for a sequel. But, you know, it is, uh, looking back on it, uh, it is really important to get constructive criticism, I will say. I just had four thoughts at once. Let me try to organize what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> First of all, there's a common wisdom that critique, if you ever take a creative writing workshop at any level, probably someone will tell you critique is not about the author, it's about the work. And this is a platitude, but it's also a foundational truth. No matter how much of yourself you put into a piece of art that you make, it's actually not you. And people who look at it and comment on it and have feelings about it are sometimes going to be influenced by their feelings about you because whether if they really like you or really dislike you in a personal sense, that can absolutely impact how you see a piece of art. But particularly people who've never met you, their critique about that piece of art may be somewhat about you because your worldview is obviously in that piece of art, but it's not a personal attack unless of course it is directly like you suck, you're bad. You shouldn't have written this, in which case it is a personal attack. But if it's about the piece of art, it's actually not personal. Most of the time, with caveats. The other thing that I'm thinking about is people are allowed to have different opinions. And I think that this is something that is also really, really basic, but for some reason is very difficult in fandom. People can get the same information, they can look at the same piece of art, and they can have different reactions. And both of those reactions can be legitimized through evidence from the text. And you can try to convince people to your opinion because you want people to think what you think. But you can also just let those different opinions exist together at the same time. And that can be okay. And for some reason, this is like very, very difficult. The third thing that I'm thinking about is that much like critique is an important part of engaging with art, understanding your own feelings about art, and understanding how a piece of art is engaging with society and why it matters, creators of art, unless they egregiously hurt people, in my personal opinion, can be allowed to make bad art. That art is then going to be sort of critiqued. And by bad art, I mean, what do I mean by bad art? I don't know, something I don't like. But other people might think it's great art. And, and that's- Of art. <laughs> yeah, and that's where the discourse comes in, right? But the critique of the piece of art is not the same thing as saying you shouldn't make more art. It's not even saying, unless you're in a small fandom where people are gonna like attack you or whatever, which certainly happens, but ideally critique of a piece of art is information that the artist can choose to use or not to inform their next project. The artist is allowed to fuck up. That's not true according to Twitter, but according to me right now on this podcast, an artist can make art that is imperfect, that art is allowed to be critiqued, and then that artist can choose or not to take that critique into account, and they can go on to make another imperfect piece of art, because no piece of art is going to be universally accepted, right? So it's just this desire I have for more room and flexibility for reaction and making that doesn't have to be caged in by critique in the way that I think right now lots of frameworks of understanding critique in fandom spaces tends to do. Obviously there are some things that are going to really hurt people and those things should be considered and what will hurt people and how our frameworks of understanding that hurt will change as sort of society changes, but 
for things that are not egregiously hurting people, like, I don't know, people are going to mess up and, or they're just going to make something you don't like that they like. And that's fine. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I like that. And I wish, I wish I got to see that in more fandom spaces. The idea that things are not simply black and white. Art can be art. It doesn't have to be good art, even about like, check please, you know? Even while I was reading it, I was saying like, hmm, I wish this was written differently. But not to say, hmm, this comic is bad. Just like, oh, that was underwhelming. Or, you know, people are allowed to be disappointed with art. People are allowed to feel about art because that's what art is for. And writing, too. I have stopped reading South Park fanfiction years and years ago, mostly because, well, I wasn't interested. But also just because a lot of if there were comments on it at all it would be either you know scream typing or why did you do this i hate this this shouldn't exist and i oh i can't fathom getting that email and that's just me that's just a, a visceral response that i have to seeing something like that is oh ouch but if someone were to put that on their own blog, I hate this fanfiction, or make their own podcast about it, it's not directed at the author. And even if it is, that's kind of up to the author to have a thicker skin. I just want to briefly jump in and say that this is a process. Like, as someone who makes art, it's a process to get a thick skin. I just wish it's something that people could practice a bit more, because it is hard, but it's worth doing. And the other thing I just want to briefly mention about my own fanfic, which is clearly on the level of South Park in terms of cultural importance, is one of the fics that I've written that got like a lot of comments on it that were all weirded out and sort of like questioning was this fic I wrote about Biddy reading the Strata. Don't worry about it. Anyway, and the comments on that fic, I go back and reread the conversations I had with people in the comments of that fic because so many people had like weird, complicated reactions and expressed them in like really wonderful ways and not always in ways that were in line with what I saw when I was writing it, but was really gratifying to me as an author. Because the cool thing about critique is that it means you are diving as deeply as possible into a piece of fiction. And as a writer, it's actually like really gratifying if someone's doing it in a polite way, even if they disagree with what you intended, I don't know the past tense of this word, dived, dove, dove. divin, dived. It's dived. The fact that someone has dived so deeply into something you made is really special and cool if they're not being an asshole to you. That was such a cool experience for me and it was such a rare experience and I kind of wish other people got to experience it. I just miss being able to make art that was familiar to people. I haven't drawn South Park in a couple of months just because I'll, I'll get into this probably after we do that episode's uh, dive, <laughs> that episode divin. I draw mostly original characters now on purpose, and uh, they don't get as much engagement, which is what I expected. But it, it was so nice to be part of a fandom where I could post art and be like, this is Stan Marsh, and people would be like, fuck yeah, that's Stan Marsh. I have disengaged, which I think is the best thing for me to do based on uh, this silly, silly cartoon. Well... That's why I wanted to have you come and talk about South Park, because I am not unengaged in the way that you are unengaged, but I do feel like if we're going to talk about South Park, it's important to hear, I think, from a perspective of somebody who understands what the show is and understands what the fandom is, and has gone through a process of reevaluating like their relationship to it is. Watching this episode, Stanley's Cup, for me, as soon as I heard the theme song, 
I got a little bit misty-eyed just because of the nostalgia, which is one of the greatest poisons of all. Also, just because I haven't watched South Park in a long time, and it's so different to look at it through a fandom perspective, you know, putting character traits on my Excel spreadsheet and, oh, he said this, that means he must feel that, versus watching an episode of South Park as a person who has gone into the fandom like a car wash and came out the other side with a whole different perspective. I feel ways about it now that I didn't feel before, and in, in better ways, you know. I am happy to be here. I'm honored to be here. I've never been on a podcast before. Well, we're happy to have you here. So we keep saying, like, when we talk about the episode, the episode that we're talking about is the 14th episode of the 10th season of South Park. It is called Stanley's Cup. Because I am an idiot, I did not look up the exact air date, but it was, like, fall... 2006. I think it was October 2006, possibly November. I'm not going to look it up now. Who gives a shit at South Park? What's interesting about this episode, obviously it's about hockey. So that's why this is the one that we're talking about on a Check Please podcast. And we will talk about hockey, I swear. However, what's interesting about this episode of South Park is that it's kind of atypical There's no Cartman in the episode. There's really nothing about, like, the kid group or the people from the town. It's fully centered on Stan Marsh and his family. There's mostly nothing weird about current events. So they're not, like, commenting on something that happened, like, earlier in the week. And there's also nothing specifically political, although Tomato did make uh, an interesting note about political things being touched on. Although obviously there's no specific political event being referenced, the whole episode opens with Stan being manipulated by an unjust system, i.e. the government. And we'll, we'll kind of give you a full summary, but the show opens with Stan getting his bike taken away, it's impounded, and um, therefore he cannot run his paper route, route? I don't know how to say that word. And then he needs to get the money from the paper route to get the bike back, so it's a commentary on labor and on the way that the government takes advantage of working class people, the kind of way that um, systems are designed in order to perpetuate poverty and so on and so forth. Although I don't know to what effect this critique is made, but that's how it opens. So there's a discussion of sort of labor politics here. That discussion doesn't really go anywhere. It's just sort of like, this is bad, but it's there. Yeah, they don't follow it through. Whereas I feel like in a more recent season of South Park, this wouldn't be like a throwaway thing that kicks off the episode. It would be like something that was sort of jerked back and forth throughout the episode where they get into how ridiculous this whole system is. That said, I think it's interesting that you note this because it is evidence of the ethos that I was talking about earlier, this sort of libertarian ethos where 
basically the position of the South Park creators is constantly that the rational thing to do would just be to give Stan his bike back and it's the existence of this government bureaucracy confiscating the bike that creates all these problems. And why is government constantly getting in the way of people trying to live their lives? That's the creator's position, basically. And no, it doesn't go throughout the rest of the episode. So we don't, we're not going to like come back and beat this into the ground. That's the South Park ethos. It, it, it kind of does, at least a little, in, in like a symbolic way, in the way that it's also making fun of sports movies. Because after Stan gets his bike impounded, he goes to try to get it back. And the agent who's looked over his case whips out a record player and plays the, the movie trailer music and you know, Stan Marsh is a washed up fourth grader and that kind of stuff. And he's making fun of him. And, and Stan keeps, Stan doesn't really even react. He just wants his bike back and he's trying to be rational. And this caricature character has no real dialogue that furthers the plot other than the fact that now Stan realizes through some inexplicable context he now must coach the peewee hockey team in order to get the 80-something dollars to get his bike back. It's making fun of the uh, inexplicable genre of sports drama movies, while also, throughout the whole episode, the guy follows Stan around with the record player, playing the music and giving him a different summary of what's happening to him. I I like this a lot because so much of anything that happens to Stan is reactive. He just rolls his eyes at everything a lot. The whole episode, he's just trying so hard. (laughs) I have a real question. So as you mentioned, this is satirizing sports movies. And the specific movie that this is a send-up of is, of course, The Mighty Ducks. Incredible film by Disney, which then eventually led to the actual Anaheim Ducks, which is a banana situation, but that's cool. My question about this movie is, I rewatched bits of it on YouTube and couldn't bring myself to rewatch the whole thing, but I did read the Wikipedia summary because the last time I watched this movie was circa 1998, and I just needed to remind myself what happened. And it turns out that the lead character is a hotshot young lawyer played by baby-faced Emilio Estevez, and he, he gets a DUI, and he gets a community service, and the thing that he has to do for community service is coach the peewee hockey team. And my question is, there's no way that in real life community service would ever look like coaching a peewee hockey team, right? Especially for something like a DUI. If you get a DUI, even in the late 90s, they probably would not encourage you to be the role model for a group of children. I was around in the late 90s as a cognizant being, and I feel like... Yeah, I was not encouraged to spend time with alcoholics. Although I did because my family's full of them. Anyway, but like that's- And Marsh is an alcoholic. I don't know if you know that. I Uh, found this episode and I was very excited about it. Yeah, I did a vlog about it. (laughs) Yeah, but that's just like not a thing. Also, okay, The Mighty Ducks also weirdly political because it uses districting as a plot point. The really good player on the other county's team- is actually supposed to be in District 5, a.k.a. the Ducks team. So I don't know what that means, but, you know, take that into account. There's there's also critique of government in the Mighty Ducks or something. Listen, my exposure to the Mighty Ducks is that I watched, like, a three-and-a-half-minute video on YouTube called, like, Mighty Ducks, colon, best parts. And um, the one really substantive thing I learned from that video is that the Emilio Estevez character is named Gordon Bombay. 
And um, I'm obsessed with that. <laughs> I think it is amazing. And I would like to propose that if Jack Zimmerman would ever to be doing drag, perhaps the name he would use would be Bombay Gordon. <laughs> As you know, I do have a dream of Jack doing drag someday in some fanfic, and I fully love that. Well, he'd be so bad at it. Well, here's what I envision happening. Record scratch. Zach Zimmerman is you know, a young man who gets a DUI, and in order to pay his community service, he has to coach a team of drag queens, and he really learns the meaning of love. And eyeliner. Hot comedy coming this fall. As someone with a passing interest in, uh, in drag queen competition, uh, who, who knows a thing or two, He's so good on skates that I think he would be good in heels. Here's the thing. I also have a passing interest in drag competitions, <laughs> although less so than I used to because like life changes. But I think he would be able to walk in the heels, but I don't think he would look good doing it. I think he would like clomp a little and he wouldn't be able to stop clomping. And that's very endearing to me when I imagine Jack Zimmerman pasting his eyebrows down and putting on a wig. Oh God, those giant eyebrows. <laughs> Listen, that's a glue stick territory. Anyway, let's get back to the Mighty Ducks or <laughs> South Park, either or. Dan Marsh has his bike taken away and he has to coach the <laughs> hockey team. And he's my favorite character. Uh, he's kind of like the, the everyman, like straight man character. He started as the Trey Parker avatar in the show who was fed up with everything. So if you want to talk about the work is, is not the author, in, in some ways South Park is. Having said that, however, as Trey Parker has gotten older, you know, he started the show when he was in his late 20s. Now he is- At least early 90s. <laughs> yeah, I know that's correct. He's dead. <laughs> the author is dead. No, he's, uh, no, he's literally dead. I buried him in a coffin. No, um, he's, uh, he's 50. So he's more like how he was viewing his dad now. Like, how he's, you know, was viewing his dad when he created the Stan Marsh father, Randy Marsh character, than he is like Stan. So this episode of the show is kind of interesting because it's sort of toward the end of the era where Stan was an author proxy before the Randy Marsh character took over. Anyway, now that Stan is on the hockey team, he goes and he meets the hockey kids, and they're very childlike, saying things like, I need to go potty. Having not seen the Mighty Ducks, I can't comment on that, other than, you know, sometimes I too need to go potty, so that's very relatable. I could be wrong, because again, I last saw this in like 1998. I think maybe I was on a bus. Emilio Westerfeld's <laughs> face weirdly, weirdly mesmerizing to me as a child. Anyway, I think somebody kept having to go to the bathroom in the movie, and it was like a ha-ha, they're in hockey gear, and now this person is in so many pads, and he has to go to the bathroom. So I feel like it's, it's a reference. But I could be wrong. The, the part that I, again, I just keep having emotional reactions to everything. The, the kids in the, in the episode of South Park sound like they are voiced by actual children. And, they are. Uh, yeah, and that's something that, that usually takes me out of uh, cartoons or... Um, real life TV shows. And that's another thing about adult animation doing things that real life TV can't get away with is like, under what context do you look at a real life child and, and say, okay, now I want you to say, am I going to get cancer? Why does God hate me? You know, what was the coaching in the voice booth like? 
Trey Parker's daughter is now the age of the kids that they use to voice children on the show. And there is foot on Boogie's uh, Instagram, there is footage of him coaching her to say very R-rated things. Troubling and things. It's weird. It is a bit weird to see this man telling his, you know, five-year-old to say things like, fuck me, Jesus, or like whatever it is that he's telling this kid to say. It's incredibly bizarre. All of the kids in this episode are voiced by, maybe not Nelson, it's hard to tell, but the other children who are saying things like, I need to go potty, like those are children of the people who work at South Park Studios. Also, did you say Boogie's Instagram? Is that Trey Parker's wife or his wife's horse? It's his wife. Okay. The horse does not, to my knowledge, have its own Instagram. However, if anyone listening to this podcast has a link to Boogie Parker's horse's Instagram, for the love of God, leave it in the comments. Sorry, I don't, I don't tend to keep up with the lives of the creators of South Park. I didn't know that his wife was, was named that. I just, I just naturally assumed that was a horse's name, and I'm very sorry. Trey Parker's wife. Uh, I really have to tell you that is extremely funny. No, uh, he's, he's married to a woman, or I don't know, who knows if they're married right now. Her name is Boogie, B-O-O-G-I-E. She has an Instagram called The South Parkers. That is her Instagram handle, and she tags every single post she makes, like Trey Parker, South Park, Eric Cartman, Stan Marsh. It's very weird. It's going to amazing Instagram account if you're very interested in what rich people are doing. I just looked at this and it's not better than Wayne Gretzky's wife's Instagram, but it is also pretty incredible. I would say it's different. I don't even follow up with my favorite hockey players on social media. The most I get is from when the NHL Twitters retweet something they have tweeted. Like I think Matt Murray is having a baby or has already had the baby. But I, I kind of feel like it's like an invasion of privacy. Like I'm looking in their windows. Let me see your baby, Matt Murray. I mean, okay, not to get too deep into this because it's real far afield from this episode, but I will say that it's like one of these really interesting ethical things. And it did come up when we all became aware that Boogie had an Instagram is on one hand, it is kind of an invasion of privacy, but on the other hand, she is putting it online for public consumption and tagging it in such a way that indicates, oh, she definitely does want people to find it and look at it. Yes. So I kind of feel like if these hockey people wanted, they want somebody to see it. I do also think, especially with someone like Boogie or your average NHL player, their livelihood is not dependent on that vulnerability and sharing. And so it's very much their choice. Like they're yeah, and it, trying to build an audience to, to buy their whatever product, right? And it's it's interesting too, you know, to see to see what people do in their twenty million dollar mansions. Just just one mansion at a time though. Don't be too ridiculous. Yeah, I don't need to see all three. So this has nothing to do with twenty million dollar mansions. One of these kids has cancer. His name is Nelson. The bombshell of the episode. His health is, it becomes contingent on the success of the hockey team that Stan Marsh is coaching, which is both pretty absurdist and great, and obviously also horrifying because it makes the stakes pretty high. But you mentioned earlier that these seasons around this period, this is a little after the, the golden period that you mentioned, 
lean heavy into surreality and kind of genre critique. And the development of Nelson's cancer storyline is precisely that. That's entirely what it is. It's basically doing something that they did quite a bit during these seasons where they are taking the heightened construction of a narrative from a genre, in this case, a sports narrative for children. And they're basically kind of turning off the genre guardrails. And they're saying, okay, this movie conceits, but like, what if real life? And the charitable interpretation of this strategy. So we'll talk more about that in a minute. But the charitable interpretation is that what they're doing is, through parody, they're making a solid critique of the absurdity of formulaic sports comedies. This is not real. This is not real life. This is so incredibly predictable that the beats are being literally narrated to you by a character who is following the main character around doing record scratches on a record player. As if he's giving you this episode of the TV show as like a trailer for a movie. Yeah, there's a there's a part where uh, right after they mention how, when like the doctor comes in to give Stan the exposition about Nelson, his cancer and everything, and the record scratch guy goes, Stan Marsh is bumming on cancer. And it's like, well, yeah, who wouldn't? <laughs> It's one of those jokes where I feel bad that I laughed. We established that in order for the kid to survive the cancer, Stan Marsh needs to like successfully coach this team to win one hockey game. Their opponents are the team from Adams County. And the coach introduces himself as Gavin Throttle, which I don't know if that's from the Mighty Ducks, but it's a pretty amazing name. This team is like every team of hard ass, but really accomplished child athletes. They are all in uniform. The coach is in a suit. And every time he talks to Stan Marsh, indeed, anytime anybody talks to Stan Marsh, from this point on, they basically call him coach. And every time they call him coach, they pronounce it with this overly emphatic, like, I don't think so, coach. And they're really driving in a point about the role of the coach in a sports movie. Stan gets home from this initial encounter. He runs into his parents. His father says, your mother's been worried sick and I've been watching TV, which is funny. And then we start this kind of B plot where Stan Marsh's parents, Sharon and Randy, are really concerned about the fact that when he was on the peewee hockey team, he lost a big game. And is he just doing this coaching thing to try to reframe his own past? Stan doesn't really seem to give a shit, but he dreams a flashback. To me, the funniest thing in this flashback is that because it's based on the Mighty Ducks, which is set in, I don't know, the early to mid 1990s, Everybody in the flashback in South Park looks like they're from the 1970s, even though based on the South Park timeline, this flashback would be happening in the early 2000s. Having said that, the biggest and most important part of the episode is there's one kid on the ice who tells little peewee hockey Stan to shoot the puck into an open goal. And the question is, is that kid Kyle? I have a lot of thoughts on this. 
So from a purely fandom perspective, it's, it was widely thought for the years and years that I was active that yes, that was Kyle and they were best friends and they played hockey together and little Kyle had adorable freckles on his little face and he was like, you got it, Stan, because he's generally very supportive of Stan as a friend until recently, but that's for another day. And I didn't realize until I watched further into the episode that later in a certain circumstance, Kyle appears and he tells Stan that my mom thinks it's too dangerous to play hockey. And that's like, unless, unless Sheila has, Kyle's mom, unless she has changed her mind in the last couple of years, she used to let him play hockey and then she decided, no, it's too dangerous. Unless that's happened, that probably wasn't Kyle. But if it wasn't, was it just some random kid? Either a really funny and, uh, you know, something that maybe Kyle's mom has flip-flopped on and now she's decided that hockey is too dangerous or that wasn't Kyle or maybe it was and the South Park writers just didn't pay enough attention to realize that they have put Kyle in a scene in which he wouldn't realistically be in. If you know the history of South Park, they forget their background characters' names sometimes. Once Craig was wearing the wrong color hat. They don't write these characters with the intention of developing them. They just put them in wherever they think it's funny. So to me, it's fun to think that maybe that is Kyle. And, and maybe with the addition of a second child, his mother has decided that, nope, hockey is too dangerous for this one. But the other one survived. Tomato? I fully assumed it was Kyle because why else would you animate a small red-haired child saying that good nice things to stand? I just don't understand. Okay, so I've seen, again, like maybe 11 episodes total South Park, so I don't fully understand the antagonistic relationship between Kyle and Ike other than that one exists. But it seems to be very possible that a, a reading of that is Kyle could do it, but now Ike can't. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention is that uh, there's an episode of South Park somewhere where Cartman makes the case that ginger kids are evil, and Kyle asks about what happens to red-haired kids that don't have freckles, that aren't traditionally ginger, and Cartman calls them daywalkers and accuses Kyle of being one because he doesn't have freckles. But that little kid had freckles. So I always drew Kyle with freckles. I knew a lot of people did. I just figured maybe the South Park animators thought it was funnier if all the kids had the same face. I don't know. But it's one of those things that makes you think, were they being lazy? Or are they doing this on purpose to try to antagonize me? I don't know. I can't figure it out. Secret, what's your take? I could not possibly give less of a shit about this. And I think it is fine to interpret it either way. I think there is basically no conclusive textual evidence from South Park, the TV show. And I don't mind when people draw Kyle with freckles. It's not how I visualize him. But, you know, some people are into it, and that also is cool. So then as the episode continues, it turns out that Stan hits the puck and it makes it almost to the line and then doesn't cross over. And so ultimately they lose the game, which has left a traumatic injury on Randy's psyche and has like done nothing to Stan who doesn't give a shit about this. So Randy continues to kind of lose his mind over supporting or not supporting Stan throughout the rest of the episode, which is based on in the Mighty Ducks, Gordon Bombay's former coach who for some reason can't stop thinking about a lost championship in 1973. So 
that guy's got problems. And so does Randy, I guess. Meanwhile, people keep calling Stan coach and then putting him in positions of authority where adults end up appealing to him for his wisdom. This happens in the Nelson storyline, particularly strongly where the parents of Nelson are talking to Stan about Nelson's, I guess, potentially terminal diagnosis and just wailing about what's happening to their son saying coach. Okay. I can't do South Park voices. So forgive me, but asking coach, coach, like, what do we do? What do we do with this? What do we like? Tell us what to do. I'm, you know, you're his coach. I'm just his father. That's nothing. So, so there's this obvious send up of the sports narrative genre and the ultimate importance of coaches as figures as evidenced in the Mighty Ducks, the fact that this 30-year-old lawyer is still obsessed with his former coach. So there's something going on there. (laughs) What I will say is quite interesting is one of the things that I think about obsessively as genre, as we all know, because I keep dragging you down here with me. And and so this is like actually a count against Check, Please as a sports narrative because we barely know anything about the coaches and certainly wouldn't trust them through a cancer diagnosis. So please write a fake word. Biddy has cancer and he has to go to the coaches. He's like, I need you guys to help me out. And they're like, who are you? That's one question I've actually always had because I, I'm wearing my Penguins hockey vintage t-shirt. I've got the sticker on my car. I've got the button on my purse. I love Coach Sullivan because of the way he manages the team. Have they ever even named the coach in check, please? Yes, there's two of them. One of them is Coach Murray. One of them is Coach Hall. One of them has like a daughter. End of information given in, in check, please. I right. Think- Murray has the daughter. So I think we at least know that which one has the daughter, but truly that's it. We see them like four times. That's so weird because Biddy strikes me as a character that could use so much wisdom. He gets it a little from the other hockey friends, but nothing concrete. They all kind of give their own experience to him, the way I remember, and then they just kind of let him be and let him do his own thing and make his own conclusions and make his own pies. But after that, he's just kind of like, okay, I've learned all I need to learn about hockey. It is funny, isn't it, that in a narrative that is supposedly about sports and getting better at sports to the point where it's a significant part of the first year of the comic, we don't see anyone engage with Biddy in learning about sports except for that time Jack shoved him into a wall. Yeah, they do that clinic about checking, which to me struck me as a really good opportunity for like one of those shots where they're like touching shoulders and they make some kind of significant eye contact. But a lot of the scene was framed in a really wide shot that made it impossible for it to seem intimate at all, which probably makes sense because Jack was beating the shit out of him the entire time on purpose. But you know what I mean. It's a story about two guys getting together, so you would think there would be some kind of sports-related intimacy in the beginning, but I I guess Ngozi and I are just two different writers. You would expect that, wouldn't you, in a romance narrative where a thoughtfully angled shot could build some kind of frisson of emotion and intensity, but alas, for some reason it didn't happen. A low-stakes romantic narrative. I, I wish there had just been a pivotal moment, like in one of those big, big, important games, like before Biddy got the crap knocked out of him, where the coach like sits him down and goes, okay, we're going to run this play. But before we do, I want you to keep in mind that if somebody bumps into you, don't pass out, please. 
I guess it's funny, right? Because Check Please is such a trope-driven narrative and yet also manages to just skate right by all sorts of tropes that would be satisfying. So it's very trope-driven and yet doesn't satisfy me in the way that your average trope-driven story does. It's very, it's really a balancing act. Yes, a balancing act of amping me up for things that disappoint me. So speaking of being amped up and then disappointed, (laughs) what you maybe think is going to happen after this encounter with Nelson's parents is that the Park County hockey team wins, but they don't. Uh, In fact, it's a tie. The Blur song, Song 2, is used very effectively during this scene of a really boring hockey game where these kids just kind of like piddle around and don't score. Stan then has to go back to Nelson and basically tell him that, you know, we didn't win, we didn't lose, we tied. And Nelson is kind of like, what does that mean? And effectively the episode places the team in existential limbo and also Nelson. So he's not dying, but not getting any better, I guess. And eventually they are offered the chance to play against Adams County again, or maybe it's Denver County, during the uh, intermission of a Denver Avalanche, Colorado Avalanche game at the Pepsi Center. There is a couple things I wanted to point out about the game where they tied, being that in hockey, When nobody wins or loses, they traditionally, at least in minor and major league games, go into overtime. And if nobody scores in overtime, then they would go into sudden death. But none of that happened. And I'm not sure if that's because it's a peewee game and they're just children and they want to go home. Or maybe if that's a rule. Uh, I'm not really familiar with children's hockey, but I obviously they were trying to move the narrative along. But as somebody who likes to watch the game, I was like, what? Hello? And there was another thing, too, that kind of got to me about the second game they're offered, which is Denver County. The funny thing about the game they tied in is that Adams County is presented as this super regimented team. They're like, whacking their sticks in time on the ice. And then they also suck because they're also children. They're out there piddling around on the ice too. Uh, Apparently the Denver County team is supposed to be actually good. But if I had somehow gotten a ticket to a Colorado Avalanche game at the Pepsi Center and they played peewee hockey in between periods, that's when I would go get my beer. Nothing against community sports or anything, but usually in between periods, they do like a fun game with beanbags or they give away a car. Um, At the Seattle Thunderbirds game I went to once, uh, there was a, a game in between periods where you throw, you buy a ball with a number on it at, on the outside of the stadium before the game. During the game, you're sitting with it. And then in between periods, they roll out a brand new fresh Toyota onto the rink and they open the sunroof. And whoever gets the ball into the sunroof and it, you know, they pull them out at the end and read their number off of it, either gets a prize or gets, I think it was the car. If they replace that with a peewee hockey game, I would, again, I would be underwhelmed. (laughs) Well, there's two intermission periods, so I guess we just have to imagine what happened during, like, the first one. I should be thinking about this in the nonsensical, fucked up, surrealistic South Park world it is, but I I just keep thinking about hockey. (laughs) Well, the thing about Adams County, like, turning out to be not very good is... Like, again, the genre critique that the episode is making is that it's playing the conceit totally straight while making, like, all of the actors real-world counterparts. 
So it's like, yeah, that is what kids would do. It wouldn't be a very exciting hockey game. And neither would probably like the hockey games played in the Mighty Ducks, which as I mentioned, I have seen three and a half minutes of the best parts of, and that's where I learned about Gordon Bombay. In order to beat Denver County, uh, the boys on the hockey team tell Stan that they need a ringer because they've seen a lot of sports movies, I guess. So they decide to go get a Canadian. And of course, there is a very conveniently Canadian peewee-aged kid in the South Park cast, Ike Broflovsky, Kyle's younger brother. That's where we get that little scene about... Um, you know, Kyle saying, my mom doesn't want Ike playing hockey. She thinks it's dangerous. And Stan basically dismissing it and saying, it's just going to be one game. It's just going to be against another peewee team. It's going to be fine. He, he promises that Ike won't get hurt. Stan promises a lot of things in this episode. In order to plan for this game, he draws up a hockey diagram. And I have never paid attention to the hockey diagram that he draws before. But now we have a ringer who knows a little <laughs> bit about hockey plays. So, so I don't, so I, I would assume that because the diagram that has been drawn is pretty simplistic and I can't find another one like it really anywhere in published articles from actual hockey professionals. But from what I can tell, Stan has drawn something of an aggressive move uh, with his team, if I'm interpreting it right. Um, they're making a pass at uh, the opposing goal. And it looks to me like some kind of aggressive forecheck. And that would be to position your players in a way that would defend the person who you intend to make the goal with. And what he's done is he's put what I would think to be both of his defensemen on the side, taking the puck up the side, which is pretty common, having two forwards protect them as they're going up. And he he's drawn an arrow to indicate a pass, uh, a pretty quick pass. But what he's also done is left two of the opposing team's defensemen unchecked. And that means that this person, this player that the puck is being passed to is going to have to make uh, a pretty long shot through the crease right there. And this feels like foreshadowing to me because either Stan is really optimistic about this game or he doesn't know much. He can't predict the way that a supposedly very good defense team is going to work. There's a, a player he's drawn to the, you know, to the left of this shot that could easily step in and whack it. Or if the player that's supposed to make the shot misses it, it's going to go right past him to the opposing guy, and then he's going to take it up the other side. So he's left himself vulnerable in some very key places depending on a shot that probably won't work out for him. You see what I'm saying? At least the way I interpret this diagram, it feels like foreshadowing. And I think either they showed us this diagram to be like, ooh, look at Stan, he's planning a hockey game, and this is what it would look like. Or to be like, you look at this, and you tell me that this is not exactly what's going to happen. I, I looked up a lot, of, uh, a lot of hockey diagrams after I saw that, and... I couldn't find a, a specific one drawn the same way, so I would assume somebody in the writer's room or the artists, you know, one of the animators just kind of pointed to that and said, does this look like hockey? And someone else was like, yeah, a little. And then they just used it. For someone who enjoys symbolism and hockey diagrams, it feels like something that has shown me. Well, thank you. I, I think that, I don't know, I think it's cool. I think it's interesting. Obviously, as somebody who... Uh is a fan of Stan Marsh and sometimes writes stories about him. It's interesting for me to think about like what kind of hockey play he would design. Basically, despite 
Stan's planning, he almost doesn't get an opportunity to put any of his, his plays into, into effect because as the Park County team is about to go out on the ice, they are told by some dude that the Denver County team has not showed up and therefore nobody wins. They're just not going to get to play. At which point, the Colorado Avalanche is coming up the tunnel and they say, wait a minute, they can take our place and play the Detroit Red Wings. Stan at first is protesting, we've been through all this stupid emotional crap. It isn't supposed to end like this. So it seems like he's basically bought into like the plot of the episode finally after like not giving a shit. And one of the Avalanche team members says, if these kids have been through emotional changes, they have to play. So they go out onto the ice and they play the Detroit Red Wings And because the Detroit Red Wings are a real hockey team, they beat the shit out of Stan's peewee hockey team and win the game. And all of a sudden, Queen's We Are the Champions starts playing, and the entire story switches to being about the Detroit Red Wings. They're all celebrating out on the ice. No matter how many times I watch this episode, I think two of the Detroit Red Wings might be making out. They do. It's hard to tell. They do. They do. Two of them kiss. Awesome. So yeah, you want to know what? Check, please. South Park beat you to it again. (laughs) I just want to briefly make the comment so that we're clear about what we're talking about here. When you say beat the shit out of, you mean both in terms of the gameplay and literally beating five-year-olds. There's oh, yeah, no, they're fucking, they're, I mean, this is the thing. This is like the big fucking punchline at the end of the episode is the Detroit Red Wings are playing hockey with this peewee hockey team as if they are another NHL hockey team. So they're checking them. They're doing all kinds of things. There's a fight that's depicted. Actually, I think it's Ike who's being, like, punched. That's why I bring up that Stan promised specifically that Ike would not get hurt. Because you see, in, like, a scene that lasts way too long, in my opinion, an adult man holding Ike on the ice and, like, punching him repeatedly in his face. And then it's, like, you know, surrounded by shots of four-year-olds getting hit with pucks so hard that they fly into the wall. And one of them gets hit most of his teeth knocked out in one shot. There's like a sad little moment where Stan's like watching this little kid crawl around on the ice covered in blood. And he's like, I hate you, coach. Yeah. Everything that's happening in this scene is disturbing because it's happening to children. But what's interesting about it and the kind of positive argument for this episode, if you think that it's effective, I don't know, genre critique, is that the Detroit Red Wings are not doing anything that they wouldn't be doing in a hockey game. Fighting and checking and this level of violence, maybe it's kind of exaggerated and like cartoony because it's South Park, but that is what hockey is. They are just playing the hockey that they would be playing if they were playing the avalanche. And this is kind of where like the disjunction of the point of the episode is emphasized. So the Red Wings win. Two of them make out. They win by 30 points or something. I didn't write down what the score is because who gives a shit? And they're awarded a trophy, which I have to presume is the trophy from the Mighty Ducks because not only is it not the Stanley Cup, but it definitely isn't the Stanley Cup final. 
So it's just some trophy. There's a moment that I also presume is Crimson and the Mighty Ducks where just some fucking random Detroit Red Wing goes up to a middle-aged guy and they have an exchange that's like, I'm proud of you, son. <laughs> I love you, dad. And it's just like these two people who have come from fucking nowhere and the giant joke of this whole episode is basically that... Stan thought it was his story where he and his team were the protagonists, and it turns out at the end of it that it was actually about the Detroit Red Wings. And the, the funniest and the part fun- about that, too, the, uh, that's where you see some of the best animation in the whole episode. You see, when the, when the guy hugs his dad, they're like fully formed adult people with fingers, and there's a beautiful hug where they grab each other, and he puts his face in his dad's shoulder, and they're just like feeling it out, like a, a good, loving hug. And then it cuts back to Stan, who's just sitting there staring at a bunch of brutalized four-year-olds, and they lost. And it's, I don't know, I, again, I feel bad that I'm laughing, but the tonal shift is, I think, the biggest part of that joke that sells it to me. It makes it feel a little less terrible. And Nelson dies. They depict him dying. He says, no hope, and he flatlines. And then they go back to the Red Wings celebrating. I'm pretty sure it just ends there. That's just like the end. You never get to see if Stan gets his bike back or if his parents bail it out for him, which, you know, you would think they would, but that wouldn't be very funny. So one thing that I think is really interesting that I think Secret pointed out is that this episode does more work to establish how violent hockey is than all of Checkley's, even though there is an entire narrative arc about Biddy's fear of that violence. And yet the consequences of that violence are never as clear and real, despite Biddy's concussion, etc., as they are when you see an adult man beating the shit out of a child. <laughs> and so first of all, hat tip to absurdity. This is why everyone should write absurdism. Uh, Not everyone should write South Park, but everyone should write absurdism, according to me, for my tastes. All right, that's enough of that. And then it's also quite interesting because I, if we're thinking about Check, Please as a work of critique of society, which it claims to be in some ways, and a critique of toxic masculinity and a critique of hockey and all these things, it's pretty bananas that this episode of South Park does a more effective job of critiquing one of the most controversial things about hockey. That feels kind of because of its simplicity. The South Park episode is a one-off episode. We never see any of this conflict ever again. And Check Please takes a lot of time to develop their lives outside of hockey so that you care about whether or not they get hurt during the game. And that's another thing that, you know, just feels low stakes. Biddy, I think, loses a tooth and gets a minor concussion, which, you know, I'm sure hockey players had suffered less, especially in college games, but they've also suffered more. And it, I don't know, I guess, I guess it just makes me feel like all, not all of his fears, but a vast majority of them are not unfounded. Okay, in the end. He's afraid people won't accept him when he comes out, but they do. He's afraid that he's going to get hurt playing hockey, and he kind of does, but it's nothing permanent. He's afraid that maybe Jack is having an issue with his overdose and everything, but he's fine now. Jovi, you just blew my mind slightly because 
it occurred to me as you were talking that maybe Biddy's concussion was secretly a little worse than anybody thought, and that explains the rest of the comic. Okay, I'm oh my god, <laughs> the rest of the comic is like a coma dream. I have actually seen people say that they would accept that as like a believable reason for like why check please ends the way it ends. Yeah, I would as well. I had a concussion and. It changed certain things for me. And I would fully imagine that Biddy just like has minor brain damage. And that's why everything in the comic happens. All right, let's go back to South Park. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is like South Park is doing a relatively cursory job of depicting the observed reality of like the violence inherent to hockey. So they do it very successfully, but it's, like, really limited, and they're not critiquing, like, all of the systems that make hockey fucked up. They're basically just, like, making the claim that it's a really violent sport. Trey Parker is a big fan of hockey. He's a fan of the LA Kings. Like, the South, uh, you know, it's like he's been photographed at the Stanley Cup before after the Kings won the Cup. This is not, like, an uninformed view of hockey, But it's also not doing any kind of broader critique of why is it that I like hockey? What is it about this sport? So it's just making one very blunt, but nevertheless like pointed observation about the reality of the sport. So uh, check please, the other one is claiming that it's doing more work to deconstruct and reconstruct the toxic systems that make hockey what it is. But at least my feeling about it is that even though it's making that claim, it does it really incompletely because it wants to have its cake and eat it too in terms of both critiquing the toxic masculinity inherent to hockey and also having its main character succeed within hockey. And you can't, you know, have your main character win hockey and also end hockey. You have to pick one. And the comic is trying to do both of those things. So they have two completely different projects. And my observation about the honesty through, you know, with which, like, South Park is approaching the violence of hockey here, I do think is, like, true, but it's also, like, a rather limited comment. It's not trying to do as much. It's a 22 episode of television that they probably wrote between, like, you know, Friday morning and, like, Tuesday afternoon. So, um, Different projects, different contexts, still just making the point. Like, we never see anybody get, like, bloodied in Check, Please. And that is kind of one of the reasons why I like it. Just even after spending so long with South Park and other other media types that are a little darker, even especially with, like, LGBT characters, it is um, pretty refreshing, I guess, in my opinion, to see a, a, a comic where... The gay couple gets together, they stay together, they stay physically intact, and everybody's fine. And there's, I think, a little bit of blood and some mention of drugs, but that's it. When you take in a lot of darker media, just because people happen to make a lot of darker media, I'm not making a greater point about genre or anything like that, but it is nice to be refreshed and to not have to brace myself for the kinds of things that I would write. 
you know, if I were doing a, a big uh, study about the way ma uh, masculinity affects people in hockey and the way hockey is violent, I probably would have had Biddy get gravely injured and have some kind of dramatic bedside conversation between him and Jack. But I like that they don't beat the shit out of children to prove a point. They don't have to. It can just be Biddy getting up on a podium and saying, I dislike this, so I'm not like that. I choose to stay positive because that's who I am. It's like, great. In a way, Checkley's kind of ended in the same feeling of absurdity as that South Park episode did because it was a long, strange trip. And then there was a, a, sum, a summaration of either, you know, Nelson died with no hope, but then Biddy graduated with hope and we never see either of them ever again. It did feel like it ended a little absurdly. It's, I mean, I think you bring up a really interesting point. One of the things that Check Please does is it plays its tropes straight. It doesn't populate then those tropes with what real people would say or do because like none of the Checkley's characters really effectively represents what any real person would say or do, I think much of the time. <laughs> but I do think there's something interesting in the way that, and I never would have put this together if you hadn't just said this, the way that Checkley's kind of pushes its tropes to their logical conclusion, except in a happy ending sense. Whereas South Park is pushing these tropes to their logical conclusion in like Ike Brovlowski's <laughs> bleeding mouth sense, you know? Yes. It's nice to consume both kinds of media critically. And I guess it's it's just nice to see both sides of the same argument. Well, I guess they're both arguing the same thing, just in different ways. I wished there had been higher stakes in Check Plays, but that's just the hill I'm willing to die on. <laughs> Let Viddy lose an arm or something. So I want to make like a really weird point that's a similarity between uh, South Park and Check Plays that uh, I literally never thought about until we were like preparing to record this episode. I feel like the Check Please ethos is not too dissimilar from the South Park ethos, which is effectively that like people are inherently good and capable of triumphing over hardships created by bad systems. Effectively, I think Check Please has kind of a stealth libertarian viewpoint. If an individual is strong and successful enough within a system, then it's not worth questioning that system because the success of one person is proving that it's capable to succeed through that system. And likewise, hard work and innate skill will allow the best people and ideas to thrive in any circumstance on their own merits. And this is basically the libertarian ideology, the sort of Ayn Randian viewpoint. And I know this is not how Check Please is meant, but I kind of feel like it's what Check Please is communicating. It is, in part because of the lack of community that we've recently been discussing. There is this rugged individualism that ends up being embraced and people who reach out to others who aren't bitty get punished by the narrative. Not everybody, but if I think about Parson, a Catholic with a question mark, although he'll show up one of these days. If I think about Parson, his arc, his failure is not being able to separate himself from a connection that was meaningful to him, right? That's his major failure in the comic is that he reaches out to Jack. I'm just putting this together as I say this, so please forgive me. But 
that's wild because of course the comic is supposedly entirely about connection and love and romance and so on but it really only celebrates those things when they're connected to biddy like if we think about whiskey's side arc although biddy eventually accepts him for who he is there's some tension around whiskey's exploration and identity because the way that he explores that identity is not in keeping with Biddy's values, which are pretty conservative, i.e. if I work hard enough, I will overcome this fear. If I participate in the violence of hockey and become complicit in it, I will succeed. And my success is through the lens of hockey. So rather than dismantling or separating myself from the goals of hockey, I will adopt the values of hockey until I am able to reiterate those goals in my own life, right? And so when I think about Parse and kind of Parse's failure in the comic, as it is, I think, posited with that really insulting conversation with Biddy that was only released in the book that we all got screenshots of, I guess we'll talk about it when we get there in much more depth, but there's something interesting about Parse's ultimate failure being unable to let go and unable to be a strong individual who can stand on his own, succeeding at this punishing system without letting the system change him. And that's very libertarian to beat the system at its own game, retain your individuality, fuck the government, bury cans in your backyard. I can't speak to liberalism. I don't know if you can tell, but I have not gone to college. And I don't educate myself on political ideology very often. But what I can say, it feels to me as a person who is gay, who identifies with a a gay community, it feels like Biddy has a very strict idea of what a gay person offers to their community. That's kind of, it feels like that's what he talks about all the time, is what it means to be gay, and that he wants to be a role model, and he wants to be meaningful. It's not really enough for him that this whiskey guy can just be gay. He's got to approach him about it. He's got to let him know that, like, you have a community behind you, and I'm behind you, and it's okay. He's saying it in good intention, trying to let the kid know that, yes, I saw you, but I'm cool. I ain't no snitch. But he's, he's trying to let him know that, you know, we are similar and I understand you. And you can kind of see it. I don't know if Ngozi meant to do this with the art or not, but I could kind of, from what I remember, see it on Whiskey's face like, thanks. He's confused because, like, it feels kind of like he didn't need that. Like, he would rather just be gay by himself or come out on his own terms. Doesn't need someone like Biddy who it seems like coming out is very important to him, didn't need someone like that to tell him he's valid. It feels like Whiskey thought he was valid on his own, and maybe he wouldn't prefer being part of the big community that Biddy wants. But, you know, Whiskey, I think, reacted positively a little, but ultimately it just felt unnecessary. It felt like Biddy was trying to mother him or something, trying to be a little bit more of a leader in a way that didn't need a leader. Sometimes it's okay to leave people alone. (laughs) I think that is a view that a lot of readers of Check Please, at least on the sort of like Check Please critical side of things, have also expressed. Libertarianism is basically a belief that you should have basically like no government intervention. So usually libertarians are socially liberal. They favor abortion rights and marijuana legalization and gay marriage, although I guess now that's settled or whatever, but they tend to have what we associate with leftist social beliefs 
and then conservative economic beliefs and indeed their basic position is that like the government should be as small as possible and should not intervene. It's very much a philosophy of the individual should be the decision maker in his own life. So if he wants to smoke marijuana, great. And also he should not have to have the government tell him that he needs to pay taxes. And the, I guess, sort of left-leaning political note that I would put in about libertarianism is that that's very nice. And sometimes you'll get into conversations with libertarians who will try to convince you that they're not that bad and their philosophy is really progressive because they're pro-abortion. They don't care what you do in your personal life, but it's Really frustrating to hear that from people because they almost always, the vast majority of the time, give privilege to the conservative positions on economics and government regulation. So they're very pro-anti-taxes, and then they vote for Republicans. And they're like, well, I support abortion, but this tax thing is important, so I'm going to vote for Republicans. And South Park is very libertarian, very, very libertarian, in the sense that they think that all of their politics are socially liberal, They're okay with gay people. They're okay with drugs. They're very much about government systems and bureaucracies not telling people what to do. So that means things like not promoting and embracing public health regulations. If people want to injure themselves or do something stupid, they should be allowed to do so. South Park is super libertarian because they effectively believe that no government should tell a person what they can and can't do. a connection that I've never made before, I guess, without the uh, the literature. But things you learn on a hockey podcast. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. But like, yeah, that's the thing that I'm seeing here and doing this absurd episode that I'm sure people clicked out of hours ago is that South Park and Sheffley share this weird libertarian philosophy where it's all about the individual triumphing over systems and that systems are things that only hold people back. And also my understanding of libertarian ideas has developed because I now live in a place where libertarian people actually have a pretty good amount of power in government. And so when that power actually gets executive force behind it, it tends to deplete infrastructures for the obvious reason that infrastructures are systems, right? And so who gets harmed in the depletion of those infrastructures? Well, it's usually people who are vulnerable and marginalized. And this is another problem of the libertarian ethos is that even though do whatever you want sounds really progressive, unfortunately, it doesn't take into account the reality that not everyone is equally able to do whatever they want. And this is like, unfortunately, part of the check please problem where, of course, obviously check please isn't trying to champion conservative values. I think that's very clear. But that's what ends up happening, not
not only because of the sort of now we're married ending, which obviously embraces a certain kind of value, which is like, which can or cannot be read as conservative. But I think in the context of this piece of fiction is a bit conservative as the only possible happy ending, not only for Jack and Biddy, but also for Willie, <laughs> also for Ollie and Wicks. And then also for, I mean, they don't get married, but also for Shitty and Lardo. Like, I mean, it's a pretty conservative ethos. Everybody finds a partnership. They find their place in society. They become productive capitalists, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, really traditionalist right. things. And I'm, I'm guilty of that in my stuff. Not that, you know, the unreleased Ask Martian Burflowski finale that never happened and probably never will. They do get married, if anybody's curious. But... Oh, I'm curious. Oh, oh yeah. Fun. Yeah. Do you guys want to hear the uh, the secret ending? Do you yeah. want to reveal it on our podcast? In the end, and I guess I'll, I'll get into the, uh, the other thing I was going to mention too, but in the end, it's the finale, it takes place at a high school reunion because the whole thing is they graduate high school and then it's kind of just over and then Craig's in college. He does drop out and he ends up dating Wendy, which is where people started not liking the story, understandably, even though I loved it. At the end, it's like a high school reunion 10 years in the future, so they're all around their 30s. Stan and Kyle got married pretty recently. They had to wait. Stan became, I think it was, an elementary school music teacher because he, in the Ask blog, he wrote Kyle a song, which was performed by a Tumblr user who uh, changed her username that I do not remember it now. Her SoundCloud got deleted. I can't find it anywhere else and I lost it on my old computer, but I wrote the song and she took it with no direction from me and she performed it, which I thought was the greatest thing that anyone's ever done with my work. And uh, if, if she's out there, thank you so much. So Stan became a, a music teacher and Kyle became a, I think it was an electrician for, for Boeing. So he's making that money. Craig gets his redemption. He becomes a famous globetrotting journalist with Wendy, who is a civil engineer. And uh, they they do like back-to-back stories together where she does something nice and uh, she builds infrastructure and then he writes about it. It could be seen as biased, but nobody said anything about it yet. And, you know... It's not like they're doing anything that bad. And he writes about other things. But the whole point of the finale is that Stan and Kyle are as happy as they can possibly be. And then Craig walks in in his $20 million mansion and everything. No, but they're all generally surprised by where everybody ended up. The The bottom line is they're happy. And I guess in a traditionalist sense, maybe I'm a libertarian, but in secret, who knows? Maybe they all walk back down to Stark's Pond and reflect on all the shit that happened and maybe there's a couple of candles left over from 10 years ago. Who knows? Oh, and at some point, Cartman is going to confront Kyle in the bathroom about what happened, and Kyle is going to be rightfully shaken, because who talks to a man at the urinal? Who does that? Other than that, everything's fine. I am not somebody who really loves that kind of happy ending. One of my big problems with Check, Please is that I really just don't believe that this is a great ending for either of the main characters. Weirdly enough, I feel much differently about South Park. Stan and Kyle ending up together in some capacity is always how I envision the end of their story in like any given fanfic permutation. And for me, I think it's mostly because 
the context that they grew up in, the South Park canon that they're coming out of, is something that is so deeply warping and deeply traumatic that it would inherently bind them together. In every piece of fiction I've ever written, in most of the alternate universes I've put together based off of South Park, it's been like that, where either they stuck together the whole time because nobody would understand them the way that they understand each other, which is just something that happens when you grow up in an absurdist, violent reality, or they separate at some point during a formative young adult time and then come back together. The only exception to this is the only relevant alternate universe I've made to this podcast, which is the hockey universe, where Stan grows up to be not only a player on Colorado Avalanche, but he is their captain. And Kyle is some kind of biologist. Yeah, some kind of biologist. I do have to tell you that I was always really into that AU. And I haven't talked about this for a long time because it became probably pretty clear a while ago that I was never going to do it. But I did actually have an idea for a South Park Checkley's crossover. So I don't know. Basically, the idea that I had was Stan becomes a professional hockey player and he ends up on the Providence Falconers and Kyle is so excited because he is like, you know, oh, you know, Stan, there's these like other there's this like other gay hockey player on this team. We need to be friends with him. And Stan would be like, I don't want to be friends with him. He's scary. And then Kyle would get obsessed with trying to become friends with Biddy. And Biddy would just be like, I don't want to be your friend. We've been talking about this for a long time. I have written another like six pages on this outline. But really, I think we've covered a lot of wide ranging topics. And what I guess I'd like to sort of wind this back to, to conclude, is my personal sort of realization that I have had two adult experiences in fandom, and it's in these two fandoms. And they're both texts that I basically am both delighted by and disgusted by in various combinations. And it's this weird sort of feeling of just like constantly doing an oppositional practice to, through fan works and meta, make the thing into what I want from it. And it's interesting to me, like personally, that those are the two things that I've ended up doing. But one of the reasons why I wanted to ask Jovi on this episode is because you are somebody who has recently basically decided after for a long time that you cannot do South Park fandom anymore. And I basically wanted to sort of end by asking, what is it that compelled you to be interested in South Park? What was the value in it? But then also what made you want to stop doing it? This might be kind of long, so bear with me. It started because, of course, when your parents say you're not allowed to watch South Park, you're not allowed to watch Family Guy, you do it anyway. Because it's a, it's a funny cartoon and they say curse words and you're nine years old and you think that's very cool. And over time, 
you know, uh, it stopped being a contention in the household. But I started getting into the fandom because it wasn't just South Park. It was other cartoon shows, Danny Phantom and Invader Zim and stuff that a kid would like in, in that era. I would look it up on DeviantArt and I would see that other people had made stuff for it. It wasn't just me drawing cartoons and hiding them under the couch. You know, it was like other people with digital tablets making full color illustrations of something that I saw on TV. And I thought that was the coolest shit ever. And I wanted to do that. South Park was really one of the first actual recognized fan bases that I ever got into. I would post my bad art. It started on Tumblr. I had had other accounts to follow other artists that were into other cartoons, but Tumblr was where I started to post my own art. Before the Ask blog, I started with alternate universes. They were in marching band in high school. And then there was one where the Skyrim alternate universe where they were all in Skyrim, which if you don't know, is a video game that takes place in the medieval ages. And there's like magic and shit. And that was the oldest one that I've ever done. And I have the original art for it and it's bad, but that one grew with me and you can tell where my influences changed. But the Ask blog started because South Park was something that had been so widely interpreted by all these different people who a lot of them I respected and a lot of them I looked up to. And the script style format of uh, AMAB was because of Homestuck, which I had also gotten really, really into. I loved Homestuck because it was another one of those things. If you look at Homestuck sprites and South Park characters, they're very similar. There's no discernible facial features. There's no discernible body types. You can do whatever you want to them and it's okay. You know, nobody can tell you that you drew Dave Strider wrong because there's not really a wrong way to do it. Nobody can tell you you drew Stan Marsh wrong unless they do. But it just felt like such a space where I could be so widely creative with a show that I enjoyed. I thought it was funny. And I thought Cartman putting a little wig on his hand and making it talk to Kyle, that was funny. Because that's like something I would have done if I was a fourth grader. Of course, not in a sociopathic way, but you know what I mean. I didn't have to make my own characters and convince people to care about them. I could make content for people that recognized what it was. And, you know, people liked it. And when I started the Ask Blog, it was because me and my girlfriend wanted to do a story together. We loved to write stories together, and we still do. And all the art that I post now is stuff that has spawned from conversations and stories that we write together. But what we did then, we made an outline and did some preliminary artwork. And I remember Secret is probably the only reason it jumped off, because you and Nahanjin reblogged our stuff and it got more than 30 likes on it. And you know, like it was for a 14 year old who had to go to science class the next day, that was pretty crazy. And I used to sit in class and like script stuff for it. And I would do drafts on the backs of my worksheets. And now that I think back on it, it's an absurd thing to think of a kid doing. Making such passionate art for a show like South Park that does not, at least back then, did not care about the people who liked it. Matt and Trey made the show to make each other laugh. And there's something admirable about that. But in my opinion, looking back on it now, if I saw a 14-year-old making art for something like BoJack Horseman, which has a very different attitude toward it, but it's still a dark cartoon, I would wonder where the parents were. In my case, my parents were just happy that I was happy until I wasn't. And I used the Ask blog when my girlfriend dropped out because um, people didn't like the way that she role-played Kyle. 
because he wasn't a pushover. When she dropped out, I started to use the blog as my own kind of projection device, which is I know what a lot of people in the South Park fandom do. That's where a lot of people learned what kinning was. When you're kin with a character, you identify with them. They are you. You are them. And I was told by a couple friends they couldn't talk to certain people because they kin the same character I do, and I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm talking to myself. And that was odd to me. I respect people who have kin identities and, and that kind of thing, but that's the first place I heard of it. And it was odd to me because these characters really had no personality. Like, you could argue Stan is an everyman and he gets fed up really easily and he cares about animals and everything, and you could argue Kyle is an intellectual who stands up for himself and for other people, but at the same time, they're all kind of like that because that's what the show is. It's a satire about fictional characters being fed up with a system that continually fucks them over and over again. And so it was just weird to me that people would identify so strongly with someone else's identification. The thing with the South Park fandom that was so striking to me the whole time I was in it was the projection. And I was told during certain parts of the of the blog that got a little subversive and a little dark. Um, like the, the parts about suicide, the parts about alcoholism, because it was mostly shaped by that Asperger's episode where Stan's an alcoholic, canonically, and then we never see it again. People would tell me I was doing it wrong or that I shouldn't do that. And it, there's, there's a valid critique to that in the way that, like, you're misrepresenting this character. He shouldn't be acting like that. But there was also the part of people that were saying he shouldn't say this at all. There was a part where, when spoilers, I guess, Stan finally asks Kyle out. It's been building up for like a year and a half and it's like a romantic walk during a sunset and he tells Kyle that the reason, not the reason, but a reason I didn't kill myself is because I was looking forward to asking you out. And to some people, it seemed like Stan was putting unnecessary pressure on Kyle. Like, if you say no, I'm gonna kill myself. But that's not what he was saying. And that's not all what he was saying. But because I was 16 when I wrote that and because a lot of the time I felt like that, and I had my own similar issues to Stan that I would usually put a lot of myself in him. If you've ever read Ordinary People, Conrad's recovery shaped a lot of what Stan went through, just because to me, they felt like very similar characters. A lot of people thought that was not a good thing to have posted publicly. So what ended up happening was I made it look like someone sent an ask into the blog to say that to Stan directly and not me. And he reacted to it and he apologized for saying a thing he felt to Kyle. And that's just the way I reacted to the critique. And I guess it worked out and, you know, everything ended, like everything does end. But to me, the thing that really got me out of the fandom was when I saw that people around me weren't caring as much as usual. The show wasn't funny anymore. People were talking more and more about how that hurt to see or how that sucked or like, oh, this episode, I ignored about half of it and I just paid attention to the parts with Craig in it. Doing that to an episode of a TV show that is supposed to be making fun of everything seems strange and nice at the same time, that they would love it so much that they would ignore all the parts they hated, which doesn't really feel like love to me. But at the same time, they would take in the message of like the episode where Randy turns out to be Lord and it turns into a whole issue about transgender people in the workplace or the whole joke. It is a joke that Cartman is allegedly pretending to be trans so that he can get his own gender-neutral bathroom to himself. That's a joke directed at trans children. And a lot of people 
who I was in the fandom with said that that hurt. And that's kind of when they stopped loving the show because it seemed like, again, you know, that ideology in South Park that do whatever you want and government doesn't have to interfere with you all the time. But now that they are, we're having to discuss how they interfere with you. There's a whole issue to the things that South Park makes fun of. But the biggest issue for me and what really got me out of the fandom from the show's creators was that it felt like they didn't care. And now I've started to kind of shift my focus toward cartoons and TV shows that were written by people who have admitted that they care about it, like Gravity Falls. Alex Hirsch loves that show. It's his baby. And he wrote it with two seasons in mind and they got two seasons and then it was over. And then things like even just Parks and Rec, where the the actors say how much they love the writing. You never really hear people who work on South Park say how much they love it, other than the atmosphere is really freeing or, oh, it's a really creative space to be in. You know, it's kind of like that, but it's not, it's not anything near what people with real passion can make these days. I'm just tired of the mainstream cartoon taking my money taking my free art and then making fun of me and I don't love it and I guess the part that sticks with me probably the biggest is their quote either everything is okay to make fun of or nothing is it seems like a position that someone who does not get made fun of for things they can't help a lot would take if you're gay or transgender or black you can't help that And in their new video game, apparently if you play as a darker skinned character, the difficulty rating is higher, is what I've heard. I've never played it because I'm not interested in finding out if that's true or not. It's a joke. It's a joke that they make. It's not true through the whole game. There is no difficulty rating in like the actual game. It's just like a joke on like the character selection screen. Okay, that seems like a joke they did not get input on before they made it. You know, it it just seems like they don't care what other people really think. They just want to make jokes that make them laugh. And for me, I, I think I've probably shown a few times in recording this that I have really empathetic reactions to things. I feel bad for people that maybe I shouldn't feel as bad for. I feel bad for laughing about jokes about a kid with cancer. I feel bad interacting now with the South Park fandom because the scape of it has changed so drastically from when I was 14 years old to now that it feels like actively contributing to a fandom that doesn't want me there is kind of an uphill battle. I don't make mainstream art. I don't ship mainstream or canon ships very often. The only real South Park art that still gets reblogged is the Creek art that I did for my friends. And I feel bad because I don't make that anymore. Just because I can't, I can't justify the emotion toll it takes. And this is, again, this is absurd. This is so silly that I've only told, I think, two people in real life that I've ever done this. And it's so hard to like, it's hard to explain to a therapist the the toll that it's taken on me. All the, all the hard work that I put into to something like this, to only to realize that it's ridiculous. This is silly. Something that I've spent eight years of my life on. But when I think about the Ask blog, I don't, I do think a lot about the six hour live streams I would do. I would lie to stay home from school just so I could make art for it. I failed tests because I was, I couldn't study because I was, sorry, I'm crying. I was, I was working on the scripts for something that I loved so much. And then gradually I kind of just stopped loving it because the more I produced of this, the more it felt like I was doing this for other people. And it didn't get, I don't know how to explain this, I guess. Toward the end, because my girlfriend stopped working on it, it was just me. And I was the only one getting 
the backlash and I was the only one getting, you know, stuff like this shouldn't exist. You have written a bad thing and it shouldn't exist because South Park is a bad show and this comic has bad things in it and it makes people with suicidal thoughts look bad. It makes people who are alcoholics look bad because Stan is saying things that a real person wouldn't say. Of course he is. He's a cartoon. He's not real. And like, those were real feelings that I had. But the way they were communicated was expositional to keep the the post from being a million pages long. And like, again, if you go through and read the, the blog now, if you see posts on there, like I wrote an essay once to apologize for writing it the way I had and, you know, some of the, the stuff on there, I don't agree with a lot of what I had said back then because I grew as a person. But now it feels like a lot of my personal growth was shaped by a fandom of people who I couldn't communicate with effectively enough to let them know that shit sucked and I needed this as like a way to feel better. Sometimes it felt like when people identified with Stan, people loved Stan. You know, he was just a, a big, a big loving guy who have, was having a, a problem. And people would write in and say, this blog stopped me from killing myself. This blog makes me feel better when my parents are fighting. I did it for those people, not for the people who told me to be better, but for the people who routinely wrote in and, and said how much it meant to them. And that's why it's still up. And because Secret told me to keep it up for those people. Every time I think about it, I want to get rid of it. I don't want this to be like the only thing I'm known for as an artist. I don't. But I still get asked about South Park. I still get asked about stuff that happened back then. And it hurt real people. It did. But it was also a way for me to express myself at a time when it felt like the only people who could relate to me were people who didn't know me. And I could fake it. And I could tell a story that was similar enough to me to where I could feel good about saying, okay, Stan gets better in the end. He gets better. He gets over it. You know, he, he has love and he doesn't have to talk to his dad anymore and everything is fine. But now when I think about it, all that nice stuff is kind of just gone. I had to look at my involvement in the fandom through the lens of my own mental health and the way that I think about the show now versus what it used to be for me. How it used to be like a way for me to talk to people I liked and a way for me to communicate with a community of people who made the same kind of stuff that I did. And it really just died for me when, when that kind of stuff was gone or when I didn't see it as often or when when I, I was shown screenshots of a, a group chat uh, one of my friends was in where they were actively making fun of me. My art style, the way I wrote the comic, the stuff I said about it, they were going like through the archive and sending each other posts and making fun of me and I wasn't there personally to defend myself but other people defended me, you know, saying it was a long time ago and you know the show was different back then but so what? It's hard. As an artist who draws things dependent on what other people like, when you start to draw your own things that you care about, that you've made, and you have to go back to trying to convince people to like it. And that's just the big separation between South Park and now. And I've stopped doing South Park because I want to make my own stuff. I want to convince people to care about my characters. And I don't want to spend time in a fandom that feels like it doesn't want me there. It does Not me personally, but like people who write or draw the things that I do or who take the same stance on certain episodes. It's so stupid to think that something like that could keep 
somebody away from a fandom, but it does. And I know people who have left the fandom for less for their own mental health, you know, and I'm not the only person who's been, I will say it, traumatized by what's happened. I'm not the only person who's been traumatized by a fandom experience. I don't name my girlfriend anymore in like public posts because I'm afraid of what might happen. I don't know. It's something like that where I didn't really even get that famous. The blog only crested, I think, 6,500 followers. That's not a lot, really, in, especially in like Tumblr circumstances. It makes me scared to do something like a big ambitious project like Check Please because it, it feels like I don't want to be in that public eye again, but I still want people to see my art. And and so I just, I just have have to cut myself off from South Park just because thinking about it sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes just kind of makes me sick that I ever thought stuff like that was funny. And it, it can be, if, especially if you look at the show subjectively and, and look at what it is and how it was made and why it exists. It can be funny. But when you're like me and you think about all the time that you wasted on something like this that is just so silly that it's hard to describe to people. I don't know. It just makes me feel like I could have spent those eight years doing something a little more constructive, and I didn't. So I have to just stop. I've talked for a very long time. That's okay. Thank you for sharing that. I think my immediate reaction is like, look, I do believe that, yes, there are obviously people who really like Ask Marsh and Broflovsky. They're definitely people out there who have been fortified and like gotten a lot out of it. As I've told you many times, think that it's genuinely, I don't know, a standout fandom accomplishment. Having said all of that, if literally just keeping the blog up is causing you some kind of distress, like if its actual existence on the internet is a source of anxiety or like continued trauma for you, especially if it's continuing to attract negative attention, I mean, that might be a case where maybe you ought to just take it down. I don't want to tell you what the right thing to do is. I think if you did want to take it down, maybe giving people something like a week of heads up to like save what they wanted and then locking it or whatever. I think I'll, I'll keep it up. I don't think it's necessary to get rid of it altogether. I have not personally been back to that webpage, I think, since I stopped updating the Craig blog. And I haven't looked at that one either in a very long time. Although someone, someone did send me all the, uh, they printed out a bunch of the stills from the Craig blog and put them on a poster board. And they mailed that to me. And I'm looking at it right now in my closet. And... I can see the discrepancy in art style from here. <laughs> but in 10 years, it'll be fun to look back on and think, oh, this is silly. I can't believe I ever did this. Right now, I'm not in contact anymore with, I used to be friends with uh, one of the people who did my big call-out post. And I don't, I don't talk to them very much anymore uh, just because it just feels bad. And a lot of the people I used to talk to in the fandom, I don't anymore. They've either moved on or they're still in the fandom and I... I, I can't hack that. And, and part of it too was realizing in a fandom sense, the content I was making, I haven't seen the show in a very long time. So the content I was making wasn't very true to the source material. It was more or less transforming the characters to what I thought was palatable 
for me. That's why I liked doing alternate realities so much, because I could do little changes and call them the same thing. I could have Stan Marsh, but he would be a warrior and a werewolf and maybe a pretty good cook. And I'm not sure if he's any of those things in, in canon, but he could be, I guess, in Skyrim, <laughs> where there are no laws, except don't steal. But it's just, I don't know. I, I realized that the stuff I was making was closer to my own original characters than it was. And I'd been given that advice since I had been having this distress. And, and it, it's good advice. And I would give it to anybody who, you know, has a fandom they like and they draw transformative or write transformative works for it. If at any point you feel like it's become more like your own thing than a fandom thing, feel free to just make your own characters. Most art is based off of other art. So even if your character looks vaguely like the way you used to draw Craig Tucker. If somebody says that to you, you can just say, yeah, so what? <laughs> Keep making fandom works. And I respect all the people who are still in the South Park fandom, except for the people who burned me. But it feels so much better in a way to make content that I don't have to worry about people telling me I'm doing it wrong. I know whether I'm doing it wrong or not. I mean, I can judge for myself. And I will accept criticism if I ever make a full comic about them. I will accept criticism on my storytelling abilities, which, if we have learned, are a little weak and could use improvement. But I would rather make something from my own head that I really, really loved than have to worry about, have to worry about staying true to a source material that I do not like. South Park is just one of those touchy subjects for me where whenever my stepdad says, you know, oh, they're taking it off Hulu, I can't help but think, you know, like, I still have that little touch of too much knowledge. If anybody asks me a question about a South Park episode, I probably will be able to answer it. And that's just one of those things that will probably stick with me forever. And it's good and bad. My experience in the fandom has been educational as well as it has been traumatic. And I, I'm thankful for all the friends that I've made during that time. And I'm thankful that a lot of them have been able to move on to things that make them happier. I don't know. If you still make content for the fandom, that's great and you are a stronger man than I, but I don't know. It's just something that I have to separate myself from. I just don't, I don't find the show enjoyable. I don't find a lot of the audience as willing to be constructive. Sometimes you have to think about when things are fun and when they stop being fun and when that really takes a toll on you as a person. Yeah. Thank you very much for talking about it. I really appreciate hearing your experience. The only thing I want to say in response as well is I wish it didn't feel like a silly endeavor for you because as someone who makes original and fan works, you learn so much making fan works. They're a way of engaging with media that's really meaningful. And for me, I'm not trying to dictate your experience, but for me, making fan works is part thinking about a piece of media, part making art, part practicing skills or answering questions about that art that I'm really curious about. And making fan works was really integral for stuff that I was going through that was was traumatic and for kind of dealing with it and figuring it out and I also used to feel it was really silly but in the past couple of years I've been thinking a lot about it and have started to understand it as a as its own genre of work and this was clearly something that was really important for you I feel so bad that someone multiple people did not treat you with the care you deserved in that experience the, the people who have had said things to me I know were younger than me and were not as willing to be constructive 
And I, I understand that. And I know that not everybody in fandom is like that. Uh, if you make content for fandom, that's great. And don't be afraid of this thing happening to you. You know, this isn't a horror story that's supposed to warn you away from bad and naughty fandom content. It's, it's just, I don't know. It's just something unfortunate that happened to me at a time where I really wish it didn't happen on top of all the other things that had happened. It's not just silly. It, it was meaningful and it did build my art style very quickly. I, looking from the first page to about when Stan starts wearing that Bronco sweatshirt. That's about when I hit my stride. And I think that's, I don't know, that did help me a lot. And I got, you know, I learned a lot through this. A lot of things that I don't regret. And it sucks and it's kind of awesome that I was able to do something like that. But in my mind, it'll always just be something I'm secretly guilty over. And that's just, that's just me. That's just the way that I think about the things that have happened. I would never ever make fun of somebody who still um, oh, yeah. puts their heart and soul into fan work because God, thank you for being you. Because without fan work, people can't make content because there's no fans for it. You know, if we were all just making original content by ourselves, nothing would ever get done. But and I don't mean to dictate what you feel either. I was just like, oh, it hurt. Like, I just felt sad that no, that's I, part of your experience because it's a bummer, you know? I understand. And I, other people have gone through this and come out stronger, but I, it's just going to take me some, okay. some more time. And, and in that time, I just can't keep, I can't keep putting myself through this guilt. And that's a really dramatic way to look at uh, a silly cartoon. That would be like me saying, I just can't keep making Family Guy art anymore. I can't draw Peter Griffin one more time or I'm going to cry. That just feels funny to say, but contextualizing it, 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 if you zoom out far enough from anything, it'll seem absurd. I don't mean to get all dramatic and, and cry, but sometimes, sometimes. Well, it's okay if you do. Everyone's allowed to be dramatic and cry at various points. Something I will say that I had on the outline and then I started thinking, well, do we really need to get into this? But I think you've raised it in everything you've said here is that it's very, very, very hard to know why people are in what fandom and what they're getting out of it. And this is something that comes up all the time with South Park both from people who don't know anything about South Park, who are just like, oh, why would you be in this fandom for this stupid cartoon about, you know, little egg-shaped racists? Yeah. And also from people who are, and like, you know, they're not wrong, I guess. <laughs> but also from people who have been in the fandom or exposed to the fandom. And rather than speaking from the position that you speak from, which is, this is my experience and why I can't do this anymore, but I don't judge other people for doing it. Their position is, I left this because I realized this Therefore, nobody ought to be in this fandom. And I think this applies to all fandoms. And it's something that I need to continually remind myself of when I judge people out in the world for, you know, whatever sort of fixation they have on Bill Hader is that people gravitate to the fandoms that they gravitate to for as many reasons as there are fandoms and people gravitating to them. And when you make blanket statements about what should and shouldn't have fandoms and have 
participatory works about them, you are denying the basic underlying principle of why transformative fandom exists, which is that it's a way for people to take, you know, a corporate-owned media and reformat it to the media that they actually need. There have been arguments made about how South Park pushes anti-Semitic jokes in particular, or racist jokes, and people in real life have, have been hurt by that because kids watch the show and kids repeat the jokes and they don't understand that calling somebody an anti-Semitic slur hurts them because they're kids. And no, there is no perfect parent in the world who could stop their child from watching something like this. They should, there's an argument to be made for parents paying attention more to, to what their kids are witnessing. But I know from experience that that just doesn't happen. It's impossible. At the same time, people can like a show like South Park and not automatically be anti-Semitic or racist. That's the people who, you know, watch the show for the moments with Craig and Tweek, and they either ignore or publicly speak out about the parts that were uncomfortable or maybe a joke that was made in bad taste. People like some of the friends that I have in fandom will remark on how Cartman is their favorite character, not because they are awful racists, because they're not, but because his character, which is arguably one of the most vicious, and he does bad things, and so he gets what's coming to him. He gets a comeuppance, because it's apparently in the show, it's supposed to be like, don't say this, or you could end up like that naughty little fat kid. I see people hail Cartman as a character a lot because of the way he's treated in the show. He's not a hero. He's not someone you're supposed to idolize. He sucks and he makes bad jokes and he says things that are ugly and nasty because he's, because that's his character, because you're supposed to find him ugly and nasty. And that's why he gets what's coming to him all the time. So it's one of those things that makes you think you have to kind of watch adult cartoons or cartoons that deal, or even just shows that deal with subject matter like that. And when you associate an entire fandom of people who speak out against that and make content for the parts that they like about the show, when you attribute something like anti-Semitic remarks in an episode to a whole fandom by calling them all anti-Semitic, that's a sign that you don't understand the relationship between a show and a fandom. Because you don't have to like every single part about a TV show. You don't. There are parts of Parks and Rec I don't like. There are parts of Gravity Falls I don't like. But they're still some of my favorite TV shows. Saying South Park shouldn't have a fandom is like saying Star Trek shouldn't have a fandom because it sometimes deals with racism. It's not to say that People who watch Star Trek are some kind of masochists who, who like watching that kind of stuff, is to say that they are able to look past it and to say, like, this was either a very constructive moment in the history of this TV show, or this was a hurtful joke that I wish hadn't been made in poor taste. This is why I always say it's a silly thing that I've done, because when I say I made a, a big comic about South Park where they were all older and some of them were gay, people look at me really funny and say, like, isn't that the show about the racist children? No. People are racist around them and they react to it. That's just my point of view after spending so much of my life uh, analyzing it. And that's just something I wish could be discussed in a more open format like this, where liking parts of a show don't mean you agree with every single part of it. Just like liking a celebrity doesn't mean that you agree with literally every word that they say. And I guess with cancel culture becoming a thing lately, that's 
relevant. I really genuinely love this conversation. Even though like some parts of it are fraught, I really appreciate that like this is what we're talking about. Happy birthday secret, I cried. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I guess what I'll, what I'll end off by saying is that, you know, uh, I struggled with a lot of the things that you're talking about for many years in terms of like, am I wasting my time on fandom? And people don't understand what South Park fanfic is and they hassle me about getting a check, please. And all I can say is that eventually I just got to a point where I made it into my professional acumen. I just got to a point where I was like, you know what? I'm integrating this into my personality and I have the freedom to do that because I work in the arts and I'm not going to be imperiled by making that kind of decision. But yeah, I don't know. Eventually, eventually I just made the decision that like, you know what? I'm, I'm a fucking fandom idiot and and that's what I'm into and it gives me pleasure and I'm just gonna like integrate it into my fuller life and a lot of people who I care about very deeply will really only like tolerate the fandom shit like they don't they're not like mean about it but like you can tell that like they're not really interested in it and they don't really feel like it's something they have to engage with even though it's like a major part of my life and fine okay fine don't but yeah I don't know that was my solution that was my solution about how to like navigate all of this was just to just to make it into all of me and South Park fandom is something that I feel really weird about I disagree with almost every actual position that is taken on the show yeah I would but, I would second that but something about the community and the friends that I've made like built around this particular toxic clusterfuck is just one of the most positive experiences I've had as an autonomous adult. Weird, right? Weird, weird in the sense that it's just one of those little trivia details about you that other people might just not ever get to know. I will also say that this is something I've struggled with a lot. I haven't made a full professional integration, not so much because of what I'm interested in, but because I also have a lot of emotions on the internet that I don't want to integrate with my professional life. Oh, but I did just to be clear, it's not my name. You, you don't walk into work and they go, hi, Secret, how are you doing? Well, it's, it's quarantine, so I don't walk into anywhere. Yeah, no, I mean, I know, I know, but I, I, I'm mostly being flippant and sorry, but I did recently talk to my therapist about my fanfic for the first time and you know what? It went great. So I think everybody should talk to everybody about their fanfic. Thank you. If you've listened to this kooky, kooky, oppositional fandom colon South Park and Sheckley's episode of our podcast, Thank you for sticking with it. Thank you to Jovi for coming and giving us a point of view that is rare on Shrek Displeased. In closing, this has been kooky, but you know what? People who were passionate about this have made it for you to enjoy for free. You can appreciate that or not. This is something I would recommend for everybody to 
do about anything you like. Make something that only you care about. Don't make it for other people. Make it for yourself and produce it yourself and give yourself something to do in a fandom that does not totally hinge on people approving of you. Or do. If you want to make a living making polls about the outcomes of episodes, then you go ahead and do that. But it's so much more rewarding to do something that you care about, that you can identify with, that you can be proud of that you did. Not because other people loved it and you got popular and famous, but because you had fun and you spent time doing something that meant a lot to you. I would recommend that to anybody, whether you're doing it about South Park or Family Guy or whatever, you know, about Marvel or, you know, all your, all your, your shit out there. There's so much, like, just, just make something, especially right now, just make something, something subversive. Do a weird deep dive into whatever indie comic you want. It's just something that I think everybody should try at least once. And that's, that's my official take. Get into a fandom, get so deep into a fandom that you forget every other work of fiction real deep into something. It doesn't matter if your girlfriend thinks you're crazy, just do it because it, it'll be more fun that way. And that's, that's my official stance. And thank you very much for having me on your very fun and very rewarding podcast. Well, where can people find you if they want to learn more? I am Jovi Shark everywhere. That's J-O-V-I. S-H-A-R-K on Twitter, Tumblr, and that's it. I don't have an Instagram. I don't have a Pinterest. If you see my art re-uploaded on Instagram or Pinterest, please make sure it gets taken down because I did not put it there on purpose. Where are we going next time? Next time, we are going to comic 1.16, Line Mates, or as they call them in the Check Please universe, Husbands. I'm Secret OMG. You can find me on Tumblr as Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, or on AO3 as Familiar. And it was only during this recording that I realized my Check Please side blog could have been called Secret OMG CP, and I guess I really slept on that opportunity. Wow. Okay. Well, who else who else were we here today with? I'm Tomato. You can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. I really wish that underscore were a hyphen, which is what it used to be on fiction press when I was 12. And that's where you can find me. I'm going to stop recording. And so I did. Happy birthday, Secret. I still can't put in the theme music. Maybe next time. Bye.